deck the halls with boughs of holly as Matt and I discuss- Whoa, Paul, hold on a second. This is still spooky season. I guess maybe I should do the intro. Boys and girls of every age, you'll love our Halloween-themed episode of the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. Christmas-themed. Christmas. This is obviously a Halloween movie. Dude, Matt, they literally sing Making Christmas as a song. Making Christmas, making Christmas, it's so fine. And they literally sing This is Halloween as a song. This is Halloween. Let's let Oogie decide. I'm drowning in my tears. It's funny. I'm laughing. You really are too much. And now, with your permission, I'm going to do my stuff. Welcome to the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast, where we will nerd out over the shows, movies, books, games, and more that made us who we are today. Prepare yourself for a return to the 1990s on the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to our latest episode. This time, we are going to be covering The Nightmare Before Christmas. It was a long time ago, longer now than it seems, in a place that perhaps you've seen in your dreams. For the story that you are about to be told took place in the holiday worlds of old. Now, you probably wondered where holidays come from. If you haven't, I'd say it's time you begun. Is it a Halloween movie? Is it a Christmas movie? You decide. Or we will decide and have a definitive take one way or the other. I don't know. We'll find out how this conversation goes. But we picked this one because it is a nice bridge between Halloween and Christmas. We've had a very long extended Halloween season here on the podcast, which I've enjoyed thoroughly. I would really, in many ways, even do it all year round in a sense, uh, in which we do sort of pepper in scary content here and there. But now we're going to be headed into the Christmas season, And this movie is really a nice foot in both worlds. Now, this is one from back in 1993. We'll be hearing more about this storied and fabled year a little bit later when we get to our Back to the 90s segment. But what I can say is this is a movie that I remember from back in childhood. It's very nostalgic because of the Tim Burton animations. And I think for a lot of us, This was our introduction to Tim Burton. It was sort of the thing, at least in my eyes, where he really broke through, uh, especially when you were young in the 90s. Uh, In my case, I was about six years old. So this was something that you could watch, and it was a nice introduction to the sort of spooky, gothic type of vibe that Tim Burton brings to things. Uh, So that is really, I think, why it's most memorable has to do a lot with just the style. But there are, of course, a lot of themes at play here. Uh, We get a lot of interplay with the different characters involved and their storylines. We've got a lot of great music happening, uh, all kinds of things to get into. So, Paul, do you remember this one from originally back in the 90s, or did you come to it later in life? Both, because I think this (laughs) is such an iconic movie, and it's interesting how it's maintained those iconic roles throughout 
Disney's X, Y, and Z because it's it's technically part of Disney. And so you have these silly characters, right, with these great songs, very iconic songs, and, and we'll get into that. But yet it's part of Disney. And when you have princesses and princes and stuff, very flowery and, and cute. And, and this movie's it's terrifying, man. It's like really it's, it's one of those movies where you just can't believe what you're watching because it's very joyful and happy. But at the same time, it's got that Tim Burton wickedness to it that you see. And you're like, oh, this is kind of scary. So it really is a great bridge there. But this movie kept coming back. I remember Kingdom Hearts when I would play it. They had all of Halloween Town Broad is probably one of my favorite parts of the game. Really cool. And basically in, in Kingdom Hearts, you have the Heartless, which are the creatures that you're fighting in the game. And a similar plot to what Nightmare Before Christmas is. But when you go to Halloween Town, you get an entirely separate plot. I think the cutscenes maybe are like 13 minutes worth of different lore around Halloween Town. But all your characters come back and you're fighting battles in between. But the general idea is Jack wants to make these Heartless a part of Halloween by creating a heart. So they bring in the doctor to create this invention of a heart to put in the heartless and then oogie boogie gets it and he uses it for his nefarious purpose but you get a huge boss battle with oogie boogie which even just watching this movie you kind of want to be in that battle but you get a fight along jack skellington really cool and that was one of the most iconic parts of kingdom hearts playing through and even nowadays dreamlight valley which is the new disney game is incorporated nightmare before christmas so they'll they have yet to put in halloween town but it's halloween time and so they put in things like the fountain and different pumpkin shapes and they're really harnessing this it's still a part of disney lore and i think that's really what makes it shine because it's not just the movie it's also the fact of how the movie was made the the characters the songs everything about that behind the scenes as well that really just makes the movie shine and truly iconic. There's nothing like it. It's such a unique perspective. And I know Tim Burton, as part of watching this movie, I also watched it behind the scenes with my daughter. We, she loves doing those, obviously, and we had done it before. But Tim Burton was really inspired from watching The Grinch growing up. And so that's why you even start with the narration in this movie. But yeah, it's clearly the Grinch in a, in a way having that type of holiday, but it's from Tim Burton's mind. So, you know, it's going to come in a way where it's not going to be your traditional holiday special but he was aiming for that at least in some respect i think that the uniqueness of his style is really what makes this movie special it's really jarring whenever it opens because you see like the disney castle and the disney music and everything and then it's like boom tim burton style and it's just dark and and gothic and just creepy and so at odds with that nice little fantasy Disney open that you're used to seeing. It's just so weird. Uh, so I'm looking forward to getting more into that. But before we do, this actually released on October 29th of 1993. So this is breaking that weird streak of movies that we've had where they're Halloween movies, but they opened in like the summer or, or like in you know May or, or July or whenever it was. So finally, we have one opening around Halloween time. And 1993, for whatever reason, I think it's just whenever I was starting to really have a clear consciousness, like as a person that I have memories of, uh, going back to being six years old. And I feel like 1993 is the year that made me the person that I am. We had Hocus Pocus, we had Nightmare Before Christmas, Aladdin had come out in at the end of 92 and was a big deal at the beginning of 93. 
and the Sega Genesis was a major system, the SNES. It's just like all these things all sort of in a perfect storm in 1993. And so if we look at some of the popular movies from the time, we've got Jurassic Park, The Fugitive, starring Harrison Ford, The Firm, starring Tom Cruise, Sleepless in Seattle, starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, and Mrs. Doubtfire, starring Robin Williams. Regarding the musical world, we have Dream Lover by Mariah Carey, Just Kicking It by Escape, I'd Do Anything for Love But I Won't Do That by Meatloaf, and All That She Wants by Ace of Bass. One final note on music, Billy Joel still rockin' back in the 90s here with The River of Dreams. Video games were pretty important to me at this time, and there are a few here that really stick out. On the Super Nintendo, Disney's Aladdin was released. I played the Genesis version, but still, even seeing that mentioned, uh, to me, uh, is a big deal. Mortal Kombat out on the Genesis, Tetris 2 on the NES, and Virtua Fighter entering into the arcade for the first time. TV-wise, same list as always, guys. It seems like there were the same five shows that dominated the 90s. I added a few extras here. We have 60 Minutes, Home Improvement, Seinfeld, Roseanne, Grace Under Fire, Coach, and Frasier. How weird is that, that a news show, 60 Minutes, is at the top of the ratings? That's something that just blew my mind. The last category is books. And for books, there was not a ton. Again, I have trouble finding books because they often are hard to pin down to a particular month. These are ones that just are from the year in general. Uh, We have The Giver by Lois Lowry, which I know I've talked about before. And then Aliens Ate My Homework by Bruce Coville, one of my favorite authors as a child. Definitely got a ton of his books out of the Scholastic catalog. Uh, Really good sci-fi stuff. Sort of takes ideas from stuff like Star Trek, Star Wars, really whatever else you can think of. Yeah, just really awesome. Brought back some good memories just even seeing the name. I think I even have the books downstairs still. So that's a fun little... You know, I didn't expect to find that uh, when I was looking for books. Didn't realize it was 93. But that's just another way that 93 turned me into the person that I am. Just objectively the cultural best year of all time. Because you've, you've told me that many times. <laughs> I think it is. I think it is objectively the best cultural year of all time. I I mean, the music is really good. Uh, the movies are really good. Video games. I mean, the books. The TVs, classic stuff. I mean, I don't know what else you would want in this list. I think it's like if you had to draft a year... If we were doing like a year draft of the 90s, which actually is a great idea, we should probably do that. 93 is my first pick every time. Well, you had mentioned that it helped to find your life. And here we have The Firm. I mean, obviously, that's a definitive piece of, of movie literature for my <laughs> career. No, it actually wasn't, but it is one I had watched after the fact. The Practice really was the main show that had got me into law. But the firm kind of, I don't know, it's an interesting movie with Tom Cruise, basically this young blood, you know, very naive about the law. So you can connect with that as a lawyer where you have these great ambitions and then actually gets to the firm that he's working at tons of money. And then you have the the shady dealings of how they make their money that Tom Cruise is like, oh, I'm a young blood. I believe in the the morality of things. And here's this firm that he is kind of doing some illegal things. And I, do I go against them or whatever? Very honestly, a good movie. 
it does capture a little bit of why I've avoided private firms because they do, I'm not going to say that they're engaged in illegal activity, but billing hours is very gray area in terms of how you bill hours. You can technically bill anything that you do. And so you'll say, oh, I spent eight hours drafting a motion. Well, that's a gray area because would a better attorney have spent less time? Should a better attorney have spent more time? How do you categorize that? And did you actually spend eight hours? I know being a attorney working as a law clerk, I can say that a lot of motions are copy paste. And so a lot of motions are kind of a motion to dismiss based on a lack of an affidavit of merit in a medical malpractice case. You could probably copy and paste that for every single medical malpractice case. How are you billing that? Because you do have to bill a certain amount of hours and certain clients will only give you a certain amount of time they're willing to bill based on how much legal research you can do in an issue. And so if you only have two hours of legal research you're able to do, to what extent are you going under that or over that. So it's a ton of gray area there. And then, yeah, the whole culture behind private practice law firms has always just been kind of weirded out to me. I mean, I've heard stories of, you know, the different events you have to go to and people you have to schmooze and everything and not necessarily rituals, but certain things that you do, conversations you have to have that I've just been like, eh, it just seems, you know, my family's my priority. I want to do that. I don't want to have to be doing 8 p.m. meetings at some random bathhouse or something like that, that I've, I've heard these attorneys have to do to, to bond and connect with people, just not interested in any of that. And it seems like yeah, this, this is an interesting part of the law that I've, I've avoided. But when movies like this kind of hit on that, it's always interesting. Yeah, that kind of work life sounds like a nightmare. I maybe a nightmare before Christmas, you might say. I would, uh, I would never get involved in any, any profession where that was a requirement to do after hours, anything like that, because it seems like there'd be no way of uh, maintaining any kind of balance with the rest of your life. It's just really, really bizarre to me that some people. Um, you know, get into that kind of thing where there's if you want to sort of run with the the big dogs, if you want to be part of the crew, you've got to sacrifice every other facet of life. I mean, and I think there are a lot of careers that are like that, like in businesses, people like always being pressured to go out after maybe for drinks with the boss or whatever, or, or whatever the ritual happens to be. Regarding the movies, one that is I've not seen in, in forever, but that I have a lot of nostalgia for is Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, man, this was a common rental for me. I, you know, going down to the video store, I would pick it up. I watched it probably a million times. We obviously talked about Jurassic Park before, so I won't belabor that too much. Sleepless in Seattle, I've never actually seen, but gotta love Tom Hanks. I mean, my favorite role that Tom Hanks ever was in was just recently, maybe you know, a few years ago, he played Mr. Rogers, and I think he's the only person alive that could pull that off, that has the same vibes, that could make that happen. It was really amazing that he could do that. You know, the movies here are pretty strong, I, I think. You know, a lot of a lot of memories here, a lot of great actors here as well. Music-wise, I know that you're a Billy Joel fan, Paul. Do you know this song, The River of Dreams? I have listened to a good bit of his music. But I don't remember this one. I do, yeah, and it's uh, we had I, my wife had actually surprised me and taken me to a, a concert of Billy Joel in Pittsburgh when he was down there. So I was down in the, and you of, of course know about this, but I was down in Yinzer territory there. But yeah, we just yeah, listened the, the to the greatest his, place on earth. Yeah, 
Yeah, we listened to his dis- discography the whole way there and the whole way back, just putting ourselves in the Billy Joel mood, just banger after banger. But yeah, a lot, this, a lot of his earlier stuff was stuff I hadn't even heard of because it wasn't really mainstream. But you kind of forget that these guys have careers that ex- they really extend a very long time. And so some of the songs that he had on his greatest hits, I was pretty unfamiliar with. River of Dreams, absolute good song. I wouldn't put it in the, the top tier but it was one of his greatest hits, you know, it's definitely one of his greatest hits for sure, but definitely not along with, you know, Piano Man or Uptown Girl and in that category. And again, you know, I'm sure I'll get a Billy Joel stand attacking me. He's like, <laughs> how dare you like these catchy popular songs got to go here. My favorite song is actually The Stranger, which is definitely a little bit off kilter, but it was the name of one of his releases. One of his albums was The Stranger, but that's my favorite song of his of all time, but that's kind of niche. So I, I could be a Billy Joel fan in that regard because that's kind of under the radar yeah i i feel like i know his hits more than anything so i i feel like if i were to pick a favorite it would just be like really really pedestrian everyone would know what it is um obviously when you, know, you when you first hear piano man i think it really really hits um but obviously it's it's played so much now it's everyone knows it and uh there is one song that's interesting. I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's called Allentown. It's basically about <laughs> like the downfall of like the steel and like just in general of factories, like of that industry in America. And uh, of course it's sent, it's set in Pennsylvania, although it's on the wrong, it's in the wrong half of Pennsylvania, the Philly half, which is not my, my purview, but still kind of interesting though. Um, that you know that he wrote that type of song i feel like he was going through like a working man phase because like uptown girl obviously the whole idea is that he's a downtown man you know working at the mechanic shop there so even though billy joel i don't know if he actually knows anything about that kind of life or not but uh, maybe he grew up in that environment but he can sure sing about it <laughs> yeah, he definitely was trying to be connecting with the the lowers, if you will. I mean, even, you know, Piano Man, he's singing about being with them at a bar. And so, yeah, he's, that's kind of his vibe. That's kind of his music. And my love for Billy Joel came from my parents because back in the day, we had cassette players. And that's that was basically all they listened to was just Billy Joel. They would play the Billy Joel cassettes, greatest hits, and boom, we would just listen to that on vacation the whole time. Nowadays, we have Spotify, so we can kind of pick whatever we want, do a playlist. We'll do that, too. We just went to the circus recently. We were playing, you know, greatest show soundtrack and different circus tracks and whatever, putting us in the mood. But Billy Joel was basically the vacation. Once we're hitting Billy Joel, we're going to vacation. So that, that was what was nostalgic about that. And yeah, he's definitely one of those singers that will sing about. It's not just love songs like a, a Taylor Swift or something like that. A little bit deeper for Billy Joel. And I remember, I think Fallout Boy actually redid We Didn't Start the Fire with like new stuff, new topics or whatever. And it seems like people love that. I don't, what are your thoughts on that? The ability that you're just going to keep no, gone. extending decades with, with a recreation of Billy Joel's work here. No, I, I hate it. I think it's terrible. I, and I do like the Fallout Boy type of sound. I mean, you know, if you grew up, if you came of age in like the 2000s and there was like all this like, you know, new metal and punk rock and stuff. I mean, you know, you kind of have to vibe with that. But I just don't like the idea of going back to an artist who made something famous and trying to like capitalize off of it or to, to try to act like you're that person in some way. It just seems in bad taste to me. I, I don't like it. If Billy Joel was to do a, you know, sequel to 
you know, we didn't start the fire, then okay, fine. But, you know, I don't really want another person, another group stepping in and trying to pull that off. Well, it's probably not going anywhere. I'm sure <laughs> given the success of it, you were know, like Billy Joel could like give his blessing to another band. It was, it was, it's actually, I mean, it's not a bad song, but it is weird that fallout boy gets to do that, you know, because they just mm-hmm. decided to do that as opposed to Billy Joel. I'm talking like, you know, King succession where they can kind of anoint somebody instead of just fall, you know, fallout boy just made it. And now anyone else is afraid to do it. Cause they're like, Oh, fallout boy did it. We can't do it. But technically, you could have 30 million different bands all doing the remix and, and which one is the definitive. You know, I think you're right where it's got to be Billy Joel. And if not Billy Joel, maybe he he could appoint someone new, but he's he's still around. You know, I think I was excited to go to the concert because he's getting to that age where you might not see him again. You know, you might not see another concert. So being able to have the chance to see an influential singer like that's really cool. Another one, you know, an artist like Michael Jackson was someone I loved growing up as well. Never got to see him perform and so the idea of being able to see some of these later artists that are getting old before they pass, it's pretty cool. And they're still doing it, man. They're, they're still doing concerts and stuff. It's pretty awesome to see some of these older legends getting to work still. I realized when I was getting ready for this today that Nightmare Before Christmas uh, in just a matter of a few weeks at time of recording is going to be hitting the 30th anniversary and so I, I was thinking, you know, earlier, I was watching this video. It was actually on Cinemassacre, James Rolfe. He, he was doing Monster Madness for this year. And he was talking about, you know, older uh, Halloween episodes of shows like, you know, Adam's Family or Happy Days when they would do a Halloween episode. And I realized some of these shows like Adam's Families from the 60s, that's the same distance of time from the 90s to the 60s, as it is from the 90s to today, which is insane. Because if you remember being a kid, you know, Nick at Night would come on, they'd play these old shows from the 60s and the 50s or the 70s, and it it felt like it was from a thousand years ago. And now we're at that point right now with the 90s. That's where we are at. So on that depressing note, we're going to jump into we're going to jump into the to uh, you know Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> but it's crazy. I think the the thing that messes with me the most is I still see Nightmare Before Christmas. Like I still see Nightmare Before Christmas as it is because it's the same medium. You know, it's it doesn't change. It doesn't age the way that other things do. Like a a statue or something might age. So it's like to have such an impactful part of your life still there, and you not being able to tell the difference between it. It's crazy, man. And yeah, it's just going to get worse. <laughs> it's just going to get worse here for us. It's going to get a lot worse. But hey, we're here, guys. We're all a big support group with our millennial nostalgia. Uh, so I'm going to be starting off the narration. I'm going to be going into Nightmare Before Christmas. And I will uh, do the first half or so. And then Paul will take over. Uh, so if, again, you haven't seen it in a while, we will explain what's happening Although you really should watch it again. It's pretty short. It's not a very long film at all. So I would recommend watching it while you have the chance here. So like I mentioned up top, we have the Disney castle, the nice Disney music. And then we are thrust into all of a sudden this creepy, spooky world of Nightmare Before Christmas. We have a narrator doing a voiceover at the start. We see a bunch of different trees, and they are all in this sort of forest, and they're all sort of in a line together. They have different holiday symbols painted or somehow affixed to them. 
And the narrator says, you probably wondered where holidays come from. And then we go into the Halloween tree, the Halloween town, if you will. And we see all of this Halloween stuff. There's a huge montage of it. We see a scarecrow, a cemetery. You know, this is Halloween starts playing over top of everything, which might be the most iconic song from the movie. We've got ghosts, pumpkins, twisted, impossibly built buildings and and strange type of architecture. Things under the bed, under the stairs. We have vampires and cats and werewolves and mad scientists witches, clowns, Oogie Boogie himself, who we will meet in more detail later. There's a guillotine chopping pumpkins. Uh, We hear somebody reference a person named Halloween Jack. And before we know it, all of these different creatures are working together, it seems, to kind of like summon this Halloween Jack character. Eventually, he emerges from this green watered fountain some sort of green substance jack jumps up and emerges from the fountain and all of these assorted ghouls clap and cheer whenever they see him the mayor of the town who is this very strange strange little guy kind of hard to put into words but if you know just look up a picture of him you'll see uh the mayor thanks jack for his brilliant leadership uh we see that there is also this strange mad scientist character. He's in a wheelchair. He's trying to take away this woman, but she's kind of like, almost like a zombie in the sense that she has different parts of her that are sort of cobbled together. They're stitched together. Maybe not as much like a zombie, but more of like in a Frankenstein type of way. And this mad scientist is tugging on her arm. She actually unthreads her arm and runs away. He is left holding her arm, and the sort of shock of her pulling away causes him to crash his wheelchair as she runs off. We do find out that her name is Sally, and we will be seeing a lot more about her as the movie continues. The mayor in the Halloween town starts giving out prizes to different members of the audience. Like, he gives a trio of vampires an award for the most blood drained in an evening. While this award show is going on, we see Jack sneaking off away from the crowd, and he starts walking on his own. He seems kind of depressed. Nice work, Bone Daddy. Yeah, I guess so. Just like last year, and the year before that, and the year before that. He continues on into the cemetery, and we find that Sally is there hiding behind a gravestone, but she is undetected by Jack at this point. Jack walks up to the grave of a dog that says the name Zero on it, and he gestures at the grave uh, just with his hand, and we see the dog's spirit rising up out of the grave, and he starts following Jack around. This dog is kind of like a classic ghost. He's like a sheet ghost. It's like just sort of a white sheet uh, with his sort of pumpkin-style nose on the front. With Zero following him around, Jack begins singing. Yet year after year, it's the same routine. And I grow so weary of the sound of screams. And I, Jack, the Pumpkin King, have grown so tired of the same old thing. 
And we get this iconic type of shot of him standing on the crest of this sort of curled hillside. It has this weird curl as it sort of loops around. And there's a big moon behind him as he sings about his distress. Sally has been following him along this whole time, very sneakily, very, very closely, but trying to keep to the shadows here. Jack continues singing. He takes off his head at one point, like if he was doing the you know, the poor Yorick part of Shakespeare and Hamlet. He starts singing his own praises about how scary he is and everything, but nobody understands how tiresome it is to have the crown of being the Pumpkin King. For fame and praise come year after year Does nothing for these empty tears After the song is over, Sally emerges from the shadows and says that she knows how Jack feels. I know how you feel. But she sort of keeps to herself. She does not reveal herself to Jack. She's more giving a, like a soliloquy, if you will, speaking to herself. We then see her going over and picking some different herbs from the ground, things like witch hazel, different plants. And when we cut from the cemetery, we are still with Sally, and she is now back at wherever she lives, and she is putting this uh, witch hazel and deadly nightshade and other sorts of herbs into a jar. She eventually goes in to see the mad scientist. Apparently, she lives with him. Uh, He probably is responsible for making her, as he seems like he is a Frankenstein type of dog. Dr. Frankenstein type of character, and he still has her arm. He says that this is twice that she's slipped deadly nightshade into his tea. She corrects him and says it's actually the third time. And he says that he owns her because she's his creation. You're mine, you know. I made you with my own hands. You can make other creations. I'm restless. I can't help it. It's a phase, my dear. It'll pass. This cuts back then to Jack with Zero. Zero is barking, and Jack throws him one of his own bones off of his body so that Zero can fetch the bone, which he does. And that brings us back to the town in the morning. This is Halloween. Iconic, needless to say. It's one of those songs I'd mentioned about having a Spotify. It's always on Spotify's playlists. It's always accompanying us on our journey to whatever Halloween festivities we're doing. I remember I actually made a mixtape for my wife with CDs of Halloween spookiness. In addition to the Goosebumps theme song being on there, this is Halloween, of course, had to make it. And I'd go so far as to say that I think this is the main definitive song from the movie. You had mentioned, I think you're trying to be inclusive of these other songs. Is Are you on the same page with that, that this is the most iconic song from the movie? I don't think anything else is even close. Um, I guess like the boogeyman, you know, Oogie Boogie, I think his song is a little, is pretty catchy. uh, But overall, I don't think anything can touch. This is Halloween. It's what you always imagine whenever you think of the movie. I think it starts playing through my head as soon as I even consider the movie at all and in any facet. 
Absolutely. And it obviously is associated with this intro, which is awesome. You know, Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. How cool is that that he managed to get that his name in the actual title itself? Even when you go to watch it now, you get to see that pretty awesome that he was able to manage that. But right off the bat here, we're introduced to the claymation, which is interesting because you don't see it all that much anymore. And that's to me what really stands out, especially in this intro, all these cool characters and these models. And it's like animation, but it's not. And basically what they did is they had these metal forms for all these different characters with the joints in them. Then they would put on the skin over them, then decorate and whatnot, and then meticulously move the person a little bit forward everywhere in the scene, whoever was moving a little bit forward. And according to this behind the scenes, it took them 24 moves of different characters for one second of film. And one minute of film took a week to do so. That's how slow and meticulous this was. And this is the movie that actually got my daughter into kind of doing some stop motion of herself with Legos where she would do that. And yeah, basically having to, it's a good way to understand even animation in general with like a flip book type thing, but to do it in real life with actual figurines or whatever, that's what you have to do. It's so hard and the joints have to be so exceptional to be able to move, but it's pretty seamless. I mean, there's sometimes where movements are a little bit more jagged, but I kind of like that. It kind of shows that, hey, this is definitely something that's physical, something that's real and something that's missing because nowadays they would just use CGI on it. And I got to say, watching this, you can see the labor of love that went into this and the sets themselves were basically, it was all miniature. It was all really tiny and they made it seem so much bigger, which is how they shot it. But they even had like these mini lighting sets around it. It was the exact same thing as a set, but just mini. And so it's just such a labor of love for me that I can't ignore. I can't ignore the time and difficulty it goes into making this. And it's just right off the bat, you get to see all the different cool characters and have their introductions. What a great way to start off the Halloween theme in this movie. I think one thing that watching this back, and I mean, I just watched it last year. I mean, it's, it's, we watch it a decent amount, like most years probably. And one thing that I realized about it is that, I mean, the plot is fine, you know, but there's nothing wrong with it. And it's, it's an interesting concept, but what really keeps me coming back to it is the aesthetic. It's just the look and the music and the models and just how everything is just so unique. You you don't see anything like this anymore. I think that that's obvious and it's not a hot take. I think most people would agree that that's why this is an iconic movie. Uh, It's not even one of those things where you go back and you watch it and you think, oh, that looks good for the time. Like you had said, this does not age because of the style it's sort of like how we had talked about 2D video games before they went to 3D. They're basically an art style. So when you go back and play them now, they aren't trying to be realistic. They're not trying to be 3D. They're not trying to mimic real life. So when you play them, they look like you remember, and they look as good as they did back then. And that's what this type of animation can do. It maintains itself as a unique style and art form. So, I mean, we can be watching this and, you know, in another 30 years and it'll look just like it does now, like it did back then. It's a pretty big accomplishment. It's a theme that's the claymation type thing has been done a few times since that I can remember with things like Paranorman, Corpse Bride, Coraline. They've, they've tried to kind of recreate that magic and solid movies, but it does 
you know, those are movies I kind of avoided having my kids watch because, again, it's just the fear of it, the, the scariness. And that's where Nightmare Before Christmas is. I mean, talking about that intro song with the the werewolf, as terrifying as he is, and then the, the eyes underneath in the darkness. You can definitely see how this can kind of mess some kids up. And you know something like Corpse Bride, where you just have this dead person flying around. It's just it, it, it's interesting to have something so serious, but yet so cartoony and so campy and so fun. It really is this interesting dynamic that they present here. I feel like in my case and in my wife's case as well, it was sort of the opposite approach where we watched a, a good bit of scary stuff as kids. I think her in particular, but I did as well. I mean, I was watching. Uh, old, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein movies when I was like three or four years old, probably. And so I think that getting exposed to it early made it so that I just really always appreciated it as a really cool and interesting type of concept, like just the idea of horror in scary movies in general. And so I don't remember this one causing me any problems as a kid, but I think that they did a really nice job of making uh, everything looked like it, it could be kind of scary. I mean, it, this is Disney after all. And so the fact that they're sort of going and taking this this gothic turn is interesting because they also just the same year put out Hocus Pocus. And Hocus Pocus, again, does have, even though it's a comedy, it does have like a darker turn and vibe to it than what most Disney stuff would, especially up to that point. So for whatever reason... It seems like 1993 was like the year that Disney went goth. And I don't know what prompted that, but for whatever reason, I'm glad they did. Because again, that's when I was really impressionable. So I think running into this sort of content when I did had a big ripple effect throughout my tastes toward entertainment just from that point on. Hocus Pocus. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that, that it came out so closely together. But Hocus Pocus, to me, it has the same type of themes, the scariest parts. And I have no issue with my kids watching Hocus Pocus. We do that every year. But it would be, you know, maybe Sarah eating the spider or whatever, something like that is kind of like gross. Whereas Night Before Christmas, I'd say almost the entire thing, just a lot of the, just how they are designed is bad. Whereas part of Hocus Pocus's theme is actually the witches in, in order to be kind of a beautiful and kind of alluring here. It's kind of the opposite. And that's going to be the dichotomy we're faced with because though these are horrific creatures on the outside, the whole concept is, are they actually terrifying creatures? I mean, even in just the song, this is Halloween looking at some of the lyrics here, tender lumplings everywhere. Life's no fun without a good scare. That's our job, but we're not mean in our town of Halloween, just saying, Hey, this is our job. This is our role. It, we're here to entertain and have some fun, but we're not actually mean people. Like we're just doing our job here. So even though we may look this way, maybe we're actually tender, loving characters. So it's, it's going to be an interesting dynamic. We go back and forth between here in Halloween town. My uh, favorite character in this movie. No, I mean, obviously right. Is zero. Zero is amazing. He He's just like so great. He's this perfect, a companion to Jack Skellington, and he helps him out all the time throughout the movie, even though he doesn't maybe in some cases uh, even realize it. But Zero, uh, I love the way he's designed because it, he's like he's like if a dog was wearing a sheet over top of himself, like the classic sheet ghost. 
of you know somebody with with a you know a bed sheet yelling boo. Now, this is like if a dog had that type of sheet. He's also kind of long. I feel like he's sort of like a dachshund. He sort of has that vibe to me, and he has a long nose and everything, and he's got like the pumpkin. So just beautiful design on him. He he's he's amazing. I love every second of film that has him in that even if he's just there in the background i think it's really cool and just the way of how when jack walks past where his stone is that he just instantly like comes out and starts following him that gave me some warm vibes and just the fact that even the pumpkin king needs his dog i think that that that's a good um a good lesson yeah he's one of those one of those characters they add and just adds joy into the different scenes and i agree with you he's, he's a really tiny long dog i immediately thought of yours and definitely was i'm gonna need your insight here into the different things that happen with zero because you know elucidated if you will and compare him to your dog to kind of shine some light on the dynamics here of this of this loyal animal companion even in death even in halloween town amongst the creepy scary things and, and zero's not scary he's one of the few characters that's just objectively he's still cute like he's not mm-hmm. scary whatsoever as opposed to a lot of these other characters <laughs> yeah that's the funny thing he doesn't actually do anything scary at any point in the movie he basically just behaves like a dog i mean there's not really a whole lot more like to his character the he's just he's just jack's dog is pretty much the idea so i thought that was fun uh and then sally sally man like i don't think i appreciated how much of the story revolves around her as well because i think that everyone focuses on jack jack's journey his sort of quest that he's on throughout the film I mean, is largely delusional. <laughs> like he doesn't really, he doesn't really grasp exactly what he's doing. Uh, and and we can talk about how a lot of these Halloween Town characters, they just can't understand really, like inherently, th- what Christmas is because it's just not part of their nature. But Sally is the one character who doesn't like what he's doing. She's always questioning like saying this doesn't feel right. There's And so she's different than everybody else. So I think she's a really interesting character to analyze. Obviously, we have this mad scientist, this Dr. Frankenstein type character that has created her, and now he feels entitled to her, like he owns her in some way, which honestly is a pretty big, serious theme. Like this idea of this woman being owned by this guy, you know, that supposedly is her creator or whatever. It's, um, you get pretty deep with that as well. It's sort of uh, forward thinking, especially for a kid's movie. I was really impressed with her because I was paying more attention to her than I think I had in the past. Oh, we're going to get deep into that relationship. And yeah, he, he is a Dr. Frankenstein type character. His name, Dr. Finkelstein, obviously harkens to that. And it's interesting because when Jack's having his lamentation song, he really is, he's the pumpkin king. And so he has several challenges here with consistently being in Halloween. Number one, he just wants something new. He wants something different. He doesn't want this burden on him because it's just so exhausting. It's responsibility that he just doesn't want anymore. But he can't just take a break because with that comes a ton of issues. He has an entire town of people relying on him to do X, Y, or Z for what he's doing, but he's bored of it. 
And so you, you try to do everything in moderation for, you know, if you're hungry, you want to eat a bunch of food, maybe let's use Taco Bell as an example. I don't know about you, but if I eat a massive meal at Taco Bell, it's one of my happiest things, especially if I'm hungry, I dive into it. But then if you said, Hey, Paul, here's this same Taco Bell order two seconds later, I would throw up. It's just like, you can't. <laughs> yeah. I, we've all been there. I mean, no doubt. <laughs> Cause you want to keep eating and replace that satisfaction and enjoyment, but you can't. And it's kind of like hunger games where they would just throw up, you know, they would induce vomit to then eat mm-hmm. again or whatever. But you do have that idea where you can only, you, you want that difference. You want that unique experience. Jack can't get that without some serious ramifications here. And he also has the crisis of just not having a challenge either. He's not growing as a person. He has this responsibility to Halloween Town, but he articulates in that lamentation song that it's easy for him. He doesn't even have to try. It's just basically the easiest thing for him in the world to do. And while no one else can do that at the same time, he's not himself changed or moved in a character. And you had mentioned about Sally and her love for Jack and obviously her situation. She says during this narration, she says that she knows how Jack feels, right? And so it's interesting how, what, in, in what way are they connected? And how they're connected is that feeling of being trapped because she, to me, is basically a, a mail-ordered bride. You know, she's mm-hmm. somebody who's serving Dr. Finkelstein in a way where she's feeling trapped in this, whatever you want to call it, relationship, marriage or whatever it is, and she can't get out. And then Jack being in the same position of he has to be the pumpkin king with all those responsibilities. Although I do think in terms of getting out, I think it's easier for Sally to get out, in my opinion. But that being said, Dr. Finkelstein created her. So maybe he created her with that type of a, a brain, if you will, that type of a motive where it would be hard for her to get out. He almost would create her to be this level of subservience and apparently doesn't do that great of a job because she still has this tug away from him in some capacity. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, without getting, like, too intense, I mean, I, I feel like her situation is is a lot like somebody who's stuck in, like, you know, a bad, like, domestic situation, sort of like a domestic abuse kind of situation in a way. So I think, like, psychologically, it can be really hard for people to get out of something like that. Um, she does try poisoning him, like, many, many different times, but apparently... I don't know if the characters in Halloween Town can die or if they're just forever the way they are or what happens, but it seems like it's not successful or at least it's temporarily successful where she's able to like get away for a while, but then he ends up finding her again. It doesn't really seem like anybody else in the town is like concerned about her situation either. She's very much just... Everyone probably knows that this is how their relationship is, but they don't do anything about it. So Sally's sort of on an island here with this whole situation. You know, Jack, he definitely feels like he has the weight of the entire Halloween town on his shoulders because he's the king, the pumpkin king, if you will. For him to try to, I mean, imagine it's sort of like us. I mean, you know, you get it, you you have a career and, and you're ingrained in that career. You do it for... 10 years, 15 years, and you start thinking, oh, maybe I want to do something else. Maybe I want to go somewhere else, try something different. It's not that easy. You've got all this uh, pension and salary and experience and everything tied up in that job, and you're just going to leave. I mean, you might have people that depend on you, that you keep you know, making that money and, and having that position of security. So for Jack to 
try to just throw away his mantle as the Pumpkin King and be something else, that's probably not going to be an easy sell. Especially because of the incompetence here of the other members of Halloween Town, most especially the mayor, which we'll get into later. He's not <laughs> dealing with people he can really pass the torch to. And like you said, they may have this immortality about them where they're not able to die. And it, 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 who knows how long he's been doing this? I mean, it, essentially, it seems like he's been doing this for the entirety of Halloween's existence. And yeah, hard, hard to get out there. But it's always grass is always greener here for Jack, where he he's imagining things in this fantasy world that things are going to be better and things are going to be better just like people might do at their job but it's hard to then kind of sit into yourself and say listen we're gonna this these are the positives that i have that's the issue though he can't just go and experience and say oh i want to come back to halloween town without some potentially serious implications here before we move on to the next step of the narration i got to bring up a little thing here so my daughter has you know she's prepping for halloween and whatnot and she went to the Halloween store, which I got to say is is always epic. She left scared because of all the different things they have. They have so many horrifying jump scares, even within these pop-up Halloween stores. But she had been messaging me on Kids Messenger and trying to get me to guess her Halloween costume. And I couldn't do it because it was so hard for me. She said that, you know, ultimately my clues started with that this character is not a cartoon, but is Disney. And that was my second clue. And the third clue was that this character is a good sewer. And th- those, so those were my clues, right? <laughs> I, well, I think we know who it is. Stopped. I think we know who it is now. <laughs> and I don't even know that she knew we were recording this. But eventually, I was just, you know, I, I was able to come up with it. I think I eventually just had to ask her who it was, finding out that it was Sally. And the next step is going to be interesting to see what they do. The costume itself was just a wig and a dress and whatnot. And then obviously the makeup's going to have to come in to paint her face and put the stitch marks and whatnot. So it'll be interesting to see how that costume ends up turning out. I think that sounds amazing. (laughs) I mean, that's ambitious. I mean, they're going to have to do a lot of work with makeup and everything. I think that'll look awesome. And hopefully you'll be able to send me a picture whenever it's finished because I'd love to see that. I think that her clues were really good and it's really perfect timing uh, for what we're doing here. So I guess, you do you think that this inspired her? Or you said that she had no idea we were even recording this. Yeah, as far as I know, she had no idea that we were, that we were recording it. Nice. Um, but she, yeah, they she, have, like she went to the Spirit Halloween. Is that the store? That yeah, yeah, went? that's what I was talking oh, about. Oh, yeah, such a great Halloween. store. <laughs> uh, they, they have a really good Nightmare Before Christmas section this year, probably because of the anniversary. Love that store. I go in there just to walk around and look at stuff. I mean, they have everything and they have a ton of awesome decor as well as you know decorations and costumes there's a bunch of you know posters and signage and things that i have up on my walls that are from that store that are all from different movie properties really great in fact i have somebody here with me that i also (laughs) got from spirit halloween (laughs) yes oh Oh, gosh what's so Yeah, I have a stuffed Oogie Boogie right here. He hangs out in the room where I record the podcast. My wife and I always talk about how our dog has to keep him in check uh, so he doesn't run wild in the house while we're gone. So I think if not for my fearsome dog here, um, that he would probably be causing mischief as we speak. Well, what kind of what kind of bugs you got? 
stuff to yeah, do. Yeah, I don't know. Well, <laughs> we haven't unraveled them yet, so we'll see. Yeah, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> you just get cockroaches around your house. Oh, I hope not. You'll know, you'll know where they came from. Yeah. Yeah, we'll uh, know whose fault it was. Well, Oogie, welcome. Welcome to the show. Hope you en- hope you enjoy the content and don't take anything I say about your character personally. Yeah, even though it's about you to, personally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we might have to watch ourselves later. All right. Well, Oogie Boogie is here. He's ready to hear the next part of the story. Back in the town, we see the mayor ringing Jack's doorbell. He is humming This is Halloween to himself while he's doing it, which was a nice little touch. I guess it is really that catchy. Even the characters are singing it. He's looking around for Jack, but he can't find him. He says that he has the plans for next Halloween and that they need to go over it. Starts kind of losing his mind crying out for Jack to please come to the door. Jack, please, I'm only an elected official here. I can't make decisions by myself. At this point, we find out that Jack is not home at all and that he has not been home all night. The mayor is very worried. We cut to Jack in the woods, and he stumbles upon someplace new, and it is very sunny. Zero starts barking at the sun like he doesn't like it very much. He doesn't seem to like the whole place that they've stumbled into. Jack then sees the trees that we had seen in the intro that have the holiday symbols on them. There's one for Valentine's, St. Patrick's, Thanksgiving, Christmas. And Jack ends up walking up to the Christmas tree. As he approaches, he turns the knob and he looks down into the tree when he pulls the door open, but he sees nothing. All of a sudden, wind starts whooshing up from inside the tree and pulls him inside. The door slams shut and he falls through a sort of portal with snowflakes dancing all around him. When he lands, he's on a snow-covered hill and he looks down into a valley, seeing a town lit up in its full Christmas glory. Jack starts singing another song. What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? There's white things in the air. What's this? I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Wake up, Jack. This isn't fair. What's this? And he runs into things all throughout the town that give him a sort of a sense of joy, but confusion perhaps at the same time. Things like snowmen, elves, decorations. And he wonders what all of it is. He's especially confused by everyone looking like they are happy. He says, children throwing snowballs instead of throwing heads. He looks inside some of the houses. He sees people kissing under mistletoe, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Christmas trees, electric lights, strings, all sorts of things. He sees no witches or ghouls or anything underneath any of the children's beds, no monsters or nightmares, only good feelings all around. Jack runs then into a candy cane pole and literally directly running into it and there is a sign on it that says christmas town he hears a ho 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 but before we can see any more of christmas town it cuts back to halloween town we see the mayor panicking announcing that everyone needs to find jack nobody has seen him so they sound an alarm sally hears the alarm and she goes and gets the nightshade from where she had kept it before and adds it into a cauldron She adds in things like frog's breath, worm's wort, and we hear the mad scientist calling for soup. She soon arrives with some. She soon arrives with her concoction that she was cooking in the cauldron, but 
the scientist noticed that the frog's breath is suspicious. He can smell it from the soup, and he wants her to taste it first. She refuses to do so initially, but she is able to take a moment to sort of, in a very sneaky way, pull a ladle uh, with holes in it from her sock. And then she is able to drink the soup, sort of, in a way that looks convincing, while she's not really drinking it as it drips through the holes in the ladle. She then sets down the whole bowl, and he wolfs down the whole thing. We cut back to the outside, and everyone in the town seems really sad. They can't find Jack, there's no sign of him, the alarm does not seem to be helping. But then all of a sudden, they hear Zero barking, and Jack returns along with him. But this time, he has a sleigh. It's a sort of motorized sleigh, with a big sack tied onto the back. We don't know exactly where he got this. I mean, obviously from the Christmas town, but how did he acquire all these things? Did he just go around and steal them Grinch style, possibly? But somehow he's brought Christmas, in some sense, back to Halloween Town. The mayor then announces that there will be a town meeting tonight. Jack has a lot to tell everybody. We see Sally slipping out, and she is able to also manage to get her way to the meeting. At the meeting, Jack tells everyone about Christmas Town. I want to tell you about Christmas Town. There were objects so peculiar they were not to be believed. All around, things to tantalize my brain. It's a world unlike anything I've ever seen. And as hard as I tried, I can't seem to describe like a most improbable dream. He's up on a stage, he has a podium. He starts singing about what he's seen. He unveils a lot of the things that he's brought with him, the Christmas tree and presents. He pulls back a curtain and it sort of reveals all of these artifacts that he has. He starts explaining things like what presents and bows are, but the Halloween creatures do not seem to understand anything. They kind of view everything in a, in a weird, twisted, creepy kind of way. He pulls out an oversized sock which is actually a stocking, and explains that you hang it on the wall. And the creatures think that there's a foot inside. There's no foot inside, but there's candy. Or sometimes it's filled with small toys. Small toys? Do they bite? Do they snap or explode in a sack? Or perhaps they just spring out and scare girls and boys. What a splendid idea. This Christmas sounds fun. I fully endorse it. Let's try it at once. Everyone, please, now not so fast. There's something here that you don't quite grasp. They want everything to be scary. They imagine how all of these things could be turned into something scary. Jack then explains that there is a ruler of this land that he's been to. And probably sensing that the people around him, that all the other Halloween creatures want a scary story, he starts making the ruler of this land sound terrifying. He refers to him as a fearsome king with a deep and mighty voice. He's like a lobster who is huge and red. He tries to make Santa sound big and strong and explains... And on a dark, cold night, on a full moonlight, he flies into a fog like a vulture in the sky. And they call him Sandy Claus. Not Santa Claus, but Sandy Claus. And we get a red light that sort of illuminates Jack as he announces this fearful name of Sandy Claus. 
But when Jack goes back behind the curtain and no one can see him anymore, he starts lamenting about how none of them understand the special meaning that he's found in this Christmas land. Yeah, the scene with Jack here explaining Christmas Town is really fascinating because, again, we have that that dichotomy of these towns and just the idea of objective and subjective beauty here. Because I think if Santa Claus, as we know him, and we would see him as a loving, holly jolly fellow, right? If they saw him as he was, they would be scared of him. Just like how Jack <laughs> would be scary for the elves and whatnot in Christmas Town, So he kind of has to lie to them in a way to make him worse so they can actually like him better associate with him or like yeah like understand like what he is yeah it's crazy yeah Yeah, really interesting because he's trying to convince him he's trying to use persuasion and so he he makes everything horrible and subjectively for them i think a couple things that when when he's talking about christmas town and these people understand the idea of what a present is giving gifts instead of maybe candy or whatever, they immediately get excited because they're thinking, Oh, rats with gook on it or toys that scare kids and, and cause fright. And, and they attack the kids. That's how they're, they're getting excited thinking that's what the presents might be. And for them, if they got those gifts, they probably would be excited about it. Whereas <laughs> if they got maybe a Jack in the box or a toy that we're used to, it would be scary for them. Jack also mentions in the song, what's this? about songs instead of screams. And yet for Halloween town, right? Screams are probably their songs. That's probably what bring, would bring them joy to hear a scream as opposed to the songs in Christmas town. So getting hit here with this ob- objective versus subjective beauty here about these different characters and the idea that in some respects you could find beauty in the, the carnage of Halloween town, as opposed to necessarily having beauty in Christmas town. And at least, at least that's how they view it. And maybe, you know, in a lighthearted way, kind of seeing a Christmas tree during the Halloween season, you might, you know, or, or the Christmas lights strewn about during the Halloween season, you might find that to be repulsive in a way when people yeah. <laughs> have their Christmas decorations up too early or whatnot. Well, yeah, actually I, I can vibe with that to some extent uh, because I, I do not like it when people put up the Christmas stuff too early. It really kind of makes me angry, to be honest, because it's like there's no you're taking away the specialness of the season, you know, by having it happen too soon. It's just not how it's supposed to be. But I think that overall, I love the idea of like the subjective beauty that you mentioned. It is kind of fascinating to think of. There's so much that we sort of take for granted about this is how we know people see the world and we imagine that they see it the way that we do. But we have these Halloween creatures who, for them, everything that we think is scary is maybe to them, like maybe maybe it even feels kind of like nice and warm to them. Like something like a, a foot in a in a stocking would make them feel good. So then you get into this whole, like, you can really spiral down, like, thinking about what really is, you know, beauty or good or bad, and, like, how do we define these things? It's it's really fascinating. And if you were to imagine, like, an alien creature coming in and experiencing something like Christmas that they'd never seen it before, would they be afraid? Like, would it freak them out that there's flashing lights everywhere and, like, trees inside people's houses and you know socks nailed onto a wall it's it's all very strange when you think about it like in an abstracted kind of way it's you know opening up these boxes that you don't know what's inside very you know you could look at it in a very like sinister way in some respects 
I mean, here you are sitting with Oogie Boogie, who is this, probably, in my opinion, the scariest figure, and and you made him out to be this little cute little plush that you have with you, yeah, because <laughs> it's because you associate him with nostalgia, maybe the movie, etc., maybe something something that brings you comfort. I mean, I associate some kind of a a token stuffed animal, whatever, with something of comfort, a figurine of some kind. You'd have that because you're fond of it. Obviously you're not looking at that horrified. Oh, why is this in my house type deal? Obviously there's something about that that brings you joy in some respect. And I think when the Halloween season hits, yeah. I mean, I think of all the traditions going on a hayride and seeing scarecrows, you know, we just did a hayride with scarecrows and maybe they're different, like little spiders and whatever. And I see that and I see, oh yeah, that's spooky. And I, I think of the people that set it up. I think about trick or treating and maybe corn mazes and everything. And I just associate it with comfort because of the Halloween season going trick-or-treating and just the season, all of which comes with apple cider and all these you know, car- carving pumpkins and all these cool things that it's acceptable and comforting in a way. Things that might objectively in different standards be repulsive in this season in particular, it might not be. And that's very interesting dynamic that they really hit on its head here in, in Nightmare Before Christmas. It makes me wonder what it is that Jack sees in the Christmas town, because what makes him different? Like why are all of the other people repulsed by all of this stuff? But then Jack is drawn toward it and he's curious about it. And even though he shows here that he understands it maybe a little bit better than they do, he still doesn't understand it. We're going to see that pretty clearly whenever he tries to actually usurp Santa and, and try to fulfill his role, you know, it's, it's not going to go well. And so it makes me wonder like what Jack's deal is here that, that he's sort of, I mean, we know that he's tired of his job, but still like, why would he not also be repulsed by what he sees there? Well, originally, obviously he is trying to escape. So I think that's part of it. And then when he hits the actual entrance into Christmas town, it's interesting when you mentioned the wind, the wind comes out from the tree and pulls him in. And I was, it was just such an odd thing. I was like, is this fate or whatever? To me, that really is the Christmas spirit kind of soaking him in, bringing him in, tugging him in into this world. And it is interesting. I think there's some, I don't want to say necessarily bigotry, but I think that the people of Halloween Town, they like some of the Christmas spirit type ideas of giving gifts. They're not repulsed by that, right? They're repulsed by the way in which it's done. And when you see Halloween as a celebration of, hey, you know, we're going to spend time together and share a tradition or whatever. There's the actual spirit of Halloween with the traditions of getting to know people, sharing X, Y, or Z with each other. There's the same thing with Christmas. Halloween, they do it in a certain way where it may be scary for people not in Halloween Town, in Christmas Town, because they're unfamiliar with it. Those are some things you have Oogie Boogie with you that once you become exposed to it, you are able to associate it with the actual tradition underlying it. And so it's not an issue. Same thing with Christmas town with the gifts and whatever. So I don't think the people in Halloween town are necessarily rejecting the spirit of Christmas. I think they're just dealing with the effects of Christmas and how that goes about doing it. And I think that's just through ignorance. I think that's just through not being exposed to it. It's the unfamiliar. And once that would become a part of it, where they could associate the gift giving with something and and kind of remove that spookiness behind it. I think maybe they would come around it. And I think Jack, he, but he's just so overwhelmed by the Christmas spirit that he kind of sees through that. And now he's just trying to figure out how can I get them not to be scared by this? But I think Jack's also kind of, he's just seeing the Christmas spirit. He's not really dealing with the effects because as we see him try to 
replicate Christmas, he's still going to do it in the way that he knows with Halloween. So while he may be embracing the Christmas spirit to a way, he's still not at the point where he's associating Christmas the way that Christmas Town would. I think that a big part of it might be just that he was the only one who actually went there and saw everything. So he does have this firsthand experience. And then he comes back to the Halloween town as this almost like a missionary, like trying to spread like this new idea that he saw in a faraway place. And the people who haven't been there probably just can't quite get it. But like you mentioned, Jack doesn't really get it either. Like he, he does seem like he's overwhelmed with the spirit of Christmas, but we will see he goes through all of this time researching it, trying to understand it, trying to break it down. And then when they try to put together a real Christmas celebration, it just ends up being this like macabre, like grotesque, like spin on what Christmas would be if it was celebrated in a Halloween way, uh, which I think is really cool. It's really neat. Some of the visuals that we get from that of this weird you know, mashup of Halloween and Christmas that ends up getting sort of, you know, created by, by their efforts. So, uh, but Jack here is, I guess, privileged in that he made the journey. He actually saw it and then came back and no one else gets to do that. Uh, not even zero was there cause he was trapped outside in the, uh, of the tree whenever Jack got pulled in. So he's really the only person that has any contact directly with it. And, when he did go there, he he did so in a sneaky way where, as far as we know, nobody actually saw him or interacted with him. So this is really like a very internal experience just to Jack at this point. Yeah, and imagine the difficulty going back to Halloween Town trying to articulate to them what this magic is. You want them to effectuate X, Y, or Z. How do you do that? How do you articulate it? And I think he just sees, yeah, it, they'll see it as grotesque. And whatever that works. And so, yeah, it's like you said about Sandy Claus making him out to be this evil lobster creature of some sort because it goes because of his red suit. And hey, that works for them. That's going to be able to convince this incompetent mayor to be able to effectuate different policies and whatnot. And it's to me, it seems like Jack's royal vizier here. Is that really kind of his role? How does he not have more of a impact here on decisions? He, he really is lost. He has no idea really what he's doing. And it seems <laughs> like he just defers to Jack for everything. Yeah, he's, he's just a public official, man. He can't make any decisions on his own. He already told us that. (laughs) Is this (laughs) this a metaphor for a democracy or more just that Jack's the king and he's just kind of the servant type deal? I don't know. It's interesting. I guess technically, if you have a a Congress or whatever, you can't unilaterally make a decision, but that doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like Jack's just kind of a king and this guy's just his advisor. He definitely is a king, but I think also there's a little satire happening there. (laughs) At least that's, that's my take anyway. What did you think about the portrayal like animation wise of the Christmas elements you know like whenever he goes to the Christmas town I feel like they still look a little creepy because it's Tim Burton they don't really look like what I would think the Christmas town would look like I would think the Christmas town would look jollier and happier but they still have kind of like the awkward like weirdness to their animation and character which I'm not going to really criticize because it's, it's you know, the style of the film. It would be kind of jarring, I guess, to have it be a totally different style than what is in the Halloween town. But on the other hand, they don't really look Christmassy to me. They just sort of look like 
the Halloween characters with Christmas clothes on. Chalk that up to the... You could just say it's it's Jack's interpretation of Christmas Town. We're seeing the story through his eyes, or maybe the narrator Tim Burton's eyes, and that's why they're a little bit messed up. But yeah, you're completely right. Santa's scary to me. All the yeah. animation's scary. It is definitely just a weakness, unfortunately, of the of the claymation here is that they're going to be very rigid, not very jolly. I will say they do introduce the town with the classic Grinch shot, where you have the Christmas tree. And the houses surrounding it, almost identical copy from the Grinch for Tim Burton. But at the same time, we then have Jack singing, what is this? We don't get the actual carols or anything like that. He's singing the song for us, and it's still Jack singing it. So the whole thing's going to be tainted. We don't get that Grinch song around the Christmas tree. Dabu Doris, Dabu Doris type vibes where we can actually appreciate truly how beautiful the Christmas town could be. So I... I agree with you. I'm just, just going to chalk it up to us seeing it from Jack and the narrator's perspective of Halloween Town, where even someone like him, though he may be succumbing to the Christmas spirit, is still nevertheless not able to see it in the way that we would. But that's just me coming up with a theory to justify it. Well, this is sort of, I don't think we're going to disagree on this, but this is sort of at the crux of my argument of this being a Halloween movie, not a Christmas movie. Because just of the vibe and the look, because it clearly is weighted in favor of Halloween over Christmas. And you can see that just with how the characters look. I'm firmly in the it's a Halloween movie. Absolutely. It's it's from the focus of Halloween Town. And then to the extent that they're interacting with Christmas Town, it really is just a way to show, hey, just be yourself. You know, just be yourself, be a Halloween creation, do what you do well, leave Christmas Town alone. It's definitely a Halloween type vibe of Jack kind of drifting away from Halloween town due to grass is always greener, wanting something different or new. And it basically being a disaster. The moral of the story being just be yourself, sit in your lane, Halloween, you're beautiful as is be yourself. Don't try to be something different. And that's what Christmas serves. You could probably replace Christmas with a different holiday. As long as it served the function of Jack's temptation away from his role and his responsibility, as long as it is able to present that, that's the point of Christmas. It it is a, I don't want to say plot contrivance, but it really is the plot contrivance to justify him renewing himself and his love for Halloween. And so Christmas is kind of the the means by which that can happen, but definitely not a Christmas movie because you constantly see I see a lot of these gifts and stuff perverting the Christmas tradition. You know, I don't really get to see that a whole lot in terms of the Christmas tradition perverting the Halloween tradition he has necessarily, because it seems like everyone, at least at the point, is pretty excited about it. And we don't get those vibes later on when when Halloween's brought to Christmas town. Well, you mentioned uh, about people being in their lane. It kind of reminds me of a cartoon that I share on you know social media every year, uh, where it's basically you have these three cars on a racetrack, one of them is being driven by a witch, another one by a turkey, and the other one by Santa. And the Santa one is like careening across like everyone else's lanes. He's like totally cut off the turkey from going forward, and he's about to crash into the witch's car. And the witch is screaming at him, stay in your lane. And so that's like my entire vibe on like, and my whole take on holidays bleeding out of where they're supposed to fit. Like, I don't like it. I think that, you know, Christmas is in December and it should stay in December or at least close to that. Like maybe right, like after Thanksgiving is over, 
and so that uh, idea of being in the lane, very important to me. Funny you mentioned that we just got the Amazon big book of toys and whatever to prep for Christmas. <laughs> we got that about <laughs> oh, a week man. ago. So our kids are going through kind of looking at Christmas presents, but we definitely try not to go too far because again, we, you have so much time after Halloween to prep for Christmas. You have so much time. And I think Christmas is obviously deserving of that time, but you do have two full months. I'm fine getting over Thanksgiving. I, I know that's that might be a hot take where you wait until after Thanksgiving in my approach. I don't obviously do that, but not definitely not Halloween. Like at least can we at least agree on that? Just wait till after the 30, October 31st. That would give plenty of time for Christmas. Halloween's non-negotiable. How like, <laughs> like it has to be after Halloween. That is, that is so bizarre. I mean, just look in this movie, how bad of an idea it is to mix Christmas and Halloween. This movie should be the only thing that you need to, to teach you that lesson. As far as Thanksgiving goes, I mean, for me, Thanksgiving um, is like dipped in importance since I'm a vegetarian and I don't eat turkey anymore. So I will say I'm, I'm more okay with seeing Christmas stuff out like in November than I used to be. Um, because I do feel like, honestly, like Thanksgiving is like sort of weakened as like a holiday for me, uh, whereas Halloween just is more important. But I still like to see Halloween kind of in even the beginning of November, like we do with the podcast, where we, you know, cover Halloween stuff partway through November. I feel like Christmas, maybe you can start bringing it in in the latter half of November, definitely after Thanksgiving. Uh, but I wouldn't really want to see it go much further than that. I mean, as far as picking out like toys, like when you're a kid, obviously, I mean, I think I was starting to pick out toys like in the summer, probably I was already thinking about what I wanted to get. So I don't, you know, um, hold kids to the same standard. Well, Halloween and Christmas is a season. There's so many different things associated with that. Thanksgiving, although I the holiday itself is great, there's not a whole season behind it. It's really just the the one day. Other than that, you know, you, sometimes you could see maybe cornucopias, or maybe you could hang up some turkeys and draw a turkey. But there's not definitely not the type of events going on for Thanksgiving as opposed to Christmas or Halloween. And so that's why I, you know, to the extent it blends into Thanksgiving, as long as you, you have the actual day, there's not a whole season really vibe wise that I'm going for, for Thanksgiving. So I could at least understand that a little bit more than something like Halloween, where every weekend we have stuff planned Halloween wise. Back in Jack's tower or his house or whatever exactly you want to call where he lives, this sort of grand area that he's in, we see him reading books about Christmas. He has decorations all over his house. Uh, he's trying to find out about using science to understand Christmas. There's a book called The Scientific Method that he's reading, but he didn't seem to be having a lot of success. There was a cute shot of Zero asleep in his bed. He has a little dog bed that he's asleep in while Jack is working on Christmas. Going back over to Sally, uh, we see that she has been locked away because of this most recent poisoning attempt. You've poisoned me for the last time, you wretched girl. But Jack comes in to borrow equipment from Dr. Finkelstein. He's conducting his experiments about Christmas, and he needs something from the doctor here. He goes into the lab, and Sally is able to overhear whenever he talks about these experiments that he's working on. 
back at Jack's house. Zero is still asleep in his little bed. Jack tells him that he's home. And he unloads all the equipment from his bag that he got from the doctor. He picks a berry from some holly and puts it under a microscope and then manages to break the microscope as he zooms in on it. His other experiments all fail in different ways. And ultimately, we just see that Zero this whole time is just hanging out, chilling, while Jack is working on all these crazy experiments. He's just in his bed snoozing and just kind of being there by his side. But Jack, unfortunately, uh, is not having much luck. We then see Sally. Uh, She is now out and combining a bunch of different substances together. We don't know quite what she's doing. She puts it all into a basket, and she's able to lower it down from the tower that she's been stuck in. Across the way, there is a glow coming from Jack's window. She decides that she's going to try to jump down and find her way over to Jack's. She hits the ground because she literally jumps out of the window, hits the ground, has to reattach her arm and her legs, has to sew them all back together. Eventually, she manages to get herself pieced together and heads off toward Jack's place. Jack, meanwhile, uh, is still working hard at figuring out Christmas. He's writing equations everywhere. And he then suddenly has to take a moment to rest, to stop, And he sees that this basket has been raised up to his window. And he opens it up. There are things in there like a fishbone and a drink and all sorts of little things. Whenever he opens up uh, the drink in particular, it releases the sort of shape of a butterfly into the air. And whenever he looks down, he sees that uh, there's nobody there. Sally is gone. And so he goes back to work here. But we follow Sally, and we see her sitting behind a wall. She's picking leaves off of a dead flower. And as she's doing this, it suddenly transforms into a Christmas tree, the the little flower. But then it also bursts into flames immediately afterwards. Definitely not a good sign. Something's messed up here. The next morning... There's another song. Something's up with Jack, something's up with Jack. Don't know if we're ever going to get him back. Uh, We have a lot of these different creatures. Uh, This werewolf, I love the werewolf. He's got this great flannel shirt on. He's looking dapper. And they're all singing about how Jack's been locked in his tower and he's not coming out. Back in the tower, Jack is still incredibly confused about Christmas. He's singing about all of his struggles. Something here I'm not quite getting. Though I try, I keep forgetting. Like a memory long since past. Here in an instant, gone in a flash. What does it mean? What does it mean? He's been studying toys and gingerbread men and dolls. But he reprises from before this idea of what does it mean? Zero is still snoring in his bed. But Jack tosses a doll into the bed while he's working on everything. And Zero seems to like the doll. He sort of adopts it as a little bit of a toy here. We then get Zero bringing Jack a painting, a sort of drawing or a painting of Jack as the Pumpkin King. Zero just brings it in and gives it to him. Maybe Zero is trying to help Jack out here. And it does spark an idea for Jack. When he sees it, 
he sort of envisions himself, but as Sandy Claus, rather than as the Pumpkin King. This sort of creates an epiphany moment for him. He decides that he can make Christmas and actually make it better. He's going to improve on it. He bursts his windows open and yells out to everyone, Eureka! This year, Christmas will be ours! And everyone in the town is very excited, except for Sally, who just had this experience with this Christmas tree bursting into flames that she was messing around with with her flowers. The mayor tells us that Jack has a special job for everyone, and Dr. Finkelstein is in particular given a job to create reindeer and a sleigh. So we will see how he manages to do this. We then get the introduction of some characters that we have not seen before in any detail. Look! Shock! Barrel! These are these children-type characters. They're creepy-looking, of course. And we learn that they're apparently the kids of... Oogie Boogie in some way. They're his boys somehow. One looks like a witch. The other one has a red, scary devil-type mask. And the other one has a white, skeleton-like mask that they wear. Jack tells these three that he has a top-secret job for them. And he whispers whatever this job is, so we don't hear. He then says to leave Oogie Boogie out of it. They promise, but they have their fingers crossed. They're definitely going to tell him about it. We follow the three of them as they travel across the land. They start singing about kidnapping Mr. Sandy Claus. They're going to bait him into a trap, and it sounds like they plan on handing him over to Oogie Boogie. We do finally see at least the shadow of Oogie Boogie in this scene, and we get a little hint of what he might look like from the shadow. They think they'll get rewarded with a special brew from Oogie Boogie if they can bring him Sandy Claws. We get a little bit of a cutaway here of Oogie Boogie's shadow laughing and throwing dice that are filled with snakes onto a pedestal. We will see more of the snakes and the dice in particular a little bit later. This narration set presents a conglomeration of cool themes here. The first is obviously whatever Jack's doing. He's obviously in pursuit of something that he's doing, but he doesn't really understand it. And he's approaching it from this very analytical way, but he doesn't really understand the point of Christmas because he hasn't, he's not able to do that. It really gets into this nature of him understanding it. Now, what the spirit of Christmas is, whether or not it's Jesus and Christianity, or if you see it as giving in the season of love and joy, Jack's not understanding that. So he he's not being driven in the proper way here because that's just not his nature. It's a hammer, right? He's a hammer. He sees everything as a nail and that's his job in Halloween town. And here he's a hammer trying to do something different. So it really draws into this, the, the nature of these people. And here Jack and that type of ideology is kind of reflecting even in just lock, shock and barrel here. He's just so completely blind in what he's doing because he tells them, don't tell Oogie Boogie when it's Oogie Boogie's kids, like you said. The mayor warns him, like, these are Oogie's people. And Jack's like, hey, don't do that. Don't don't go tell Oogie Boogie. He says, oh, we got to make sure to commit a mischievous act. And then he asks him, don't tell anybody the secret. These people are known to be 
liars. He's known to cause mischief. And here he is entrusting them with this massive plan. And it kind of reminds me of just needing to have a strong foundation, you know, good soil with whatever you do where you're trying to hatch a plan. Because even if you maybe succeed, it might not be what you expect. And it kind of reminds me of like a barbarian or, or maybe mutineers on a ship. It's like you're just looking for the next thing, but then you don't think about what the aftermath is of what you've created because the soil's wrong. So mutineers overcoming a captain. Well, what's the next step? You have to have another captain in the same spot. And now your whole crew that you're being a captain of are all mutineers or barbarians or Vikings that exist just to pillage whatever they're doing. So you're probably going to have the same problem. So get a good foundation, a good soil here. And Jack's doing the opposite. He's just kind of flying by the whims because he's just, that's what he does. That's, that's his nature to do that. He's not understanding the deeper meanings here at all. Yeah, I thought it was it was ridiculous that he actually like he he tells them not to tell Oogie Boogie about it. And then I love how they have the fingers crossed behind the back the whole time. But Jack, like, come on, like figure that much out at least. I mean, you've been warned. You know, he doesn't listen to the mayor. Of course, probably nobody would listen to the mayor. He doesn't seem like he's that confident of a guy. But still, Jack is setting himself up for a complete failure here. For me, the biggest highlight of all this was Zero again. He's sleeping in his little bed the whole time that Jack is working on this Christmas thing. And so he's like probably countless days and nights and hours just toiling away on his chalkboard and doing his experiments. And the whole time Zero's just chilling out in his bed, just like hanging out with him. And this is literally my experience. Because as we record the podcast... At this exact moment right now, as we record the podcast, my dog is in his little bed and he is laying on the ground asleep, just hanging out while I'm chatting away at the rectangle on top of the desk here that he does not understand, but he just knows that this is what I do. And so he's there just sort of chilling out as he always does. So I had I had a lot of, um, you know, vibes here of kind of understanding Zero's situation and appreciating his loyalty here to Jack. True loyalty. And I was going to ask you, because part of this this metaphor of Jack just being the, the hammer with the nails and being very analytical, a lot of good imagery that I want to discuss. But the one that stands out to me is in Zero's bowl. Instead of a bone, he has a candy cane. And so in Jack's mind, he's like, oh, it's something white. It's hard. And maybe, you know, it's solid like a bone, but obviously if you were to actually taste it, you'd know it's not some savory thing. It's, it would have a sweet flavor to it. So I don't know how you thought about Zero and Jack with regard to that. Like it's even infecting his relationship with his dog here. Yeah. Zero, I guess, must not like the candy cane because he's left it in his bowl. Typically speaking, if a dog likes something, they're going to eat it pretty quickly. It's interesting because... Zero, he, um, when he brings up, like, the, uh, the painting of Jack as the Pumpkin King, even, I'm wondering here, is he trying to tell Jack, like, stop, <laughs> because, like, this is who you are, but then Jack takes it the entirely wrong way and, and sees himself as Sandy Claus instead of as the Pumpkin King, so I think that Zero is sensing that Jack is going off the rails and he's trying to kind of pull him back down to earth here to get him to refocus and to stop with the madness. But Jack is like in a mania here. He has doesn't listen to anybody. He doesn't listen to zero. He doesn't listen to Sally. He has no time for anybody that suggests that 
he should abandon his course here. So, yeah, I think that Jack is not taking anybody's advice. He doesn't listen to the mayor whenever he tells him not to trust Oogie Boogie's kids. He's like in his own head, in his own world. So I think it probably is affecting the relationship to an extent, although we will see that whenever he decides to put the sleigh together and and go on his Christmas night uh, run, his Christmas Eve run here, that, uh, you know, Zero is still going to step in and try to help him out because that's, that's his nature as well. For sure, Zero bringing him that picture is saying, this is who you are, Jack. And you had mentioned at the beginning of the episode here that Sally was really the one talking in Jack's ear about who he was. And the reason Sally is able to do that is because she's infatuated with him. I mean, she's spying on him, basically stalking him. And so she would understand more how Jack is as a person really representing knowing Jack. Right. And now we have zero and now we have zero doing the same thing saying, Jack, don't do this. Here's who you are. Zero would know the same things that Sally did even more. So, I mean, I would imagine your dog is with you most of your day, so he would have a great understanding of everything that you would do on a regular basis and have an understanding of who you are as a person. But again, being a dog, not able to articulate it in an actual concrete way. Here's Zero, after everything, he's seen probably far more than Sally and knows Jack far more than Sally, but obviously doesn't have maybe the depth of understanding or ability to articulate the things that Sally can. But here, Zero is doing what he can knowing Jack, knowing his personality, doing the same thing Sally did, but from a very innocent and innocuous perspective of the animal, of his of his animal companion. Yeah, I, I totally get that. Um, you know, it's interesting, whenever you have a dog, they you spend more time with them, at least I do, than any living creature that there is. Because if I'm at home by myself, I'm never really by myself, because he's here all the time. So... Literally any moment that I'm in the house, I'm with him. You know, when I'm in here recording, he's sitting here with me, you know, in his bed. So I I think that with Zero, I mean, he's the one who knows Jack the best, no question about that. And this is his way of trying to help him out. Unfortunately, Jack is going to go off even more off the deep end here and take it because he has this vision of himself as Sandy Claus. So now he's going to go full tilt toward not just trying to understand Christmas. Now he's actually sort of like trying to conquer Christmas. He's trying to take it for the Halloween town. You know, he announces to everybody that Christmas is going to be ours this year. So now Jack is just, he's just trying to just pretty much usurp this holiday. He's, he's going to try to take it over. Absolutely. And it's interesting because he wasn't like that when you began your narration. It's definitely a very distinct change between really an analytical brain and his heart and trying to find the actual that whatever that's missing, that spirit, that heart behind his Christmas, he then comes to. But in the beginning, he's very analytical about it because that's how he's approaching it. When you're not being emotional, you're being intellectual. And so he's being very intellectual and so much great imagery here of Jack during this with the chalkboard. You'd mentioned him having problems on the chalkboard. You know, he sees something like 12 slash 25, December 25th, which would be a date, how we articulate it, as a division problem, because obviously that's what the slash means. You see chestnuts, and it's another division problem with the slash above an open fire, because he hears the song chestnuts roasting an open fire, and so he makes that into a math problem. 
We have 12.25.93, December 25th, 93, the year the movie came out, as another math equation. So he's seeing everything from this analytical perspective. When you really take a look at it, it's very articulate as to what we're looking at here with Jack trying to really build something that he doesn't understand. And we actually get the literal conclusion, in my opinion, when Jack's building a house of cards, he's actually building a house of cards that say like Noel and Christmas on it. And then it lo and behold collapses. So he's trying to build (laughs) this house, literal house of cards here that just fails. And then he says, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And I'm just going to do what I do best. Treat Christmas as Jack the Pumpkin King. He's following his heart. He's following his nature as you articulated, and that's going to lead to a destru- honestly a destruction of Christmas because that's who he is. A- at his nature, he's a Halloween guy, and so he's done trying to even attempt to understand the Christmas spirit. He's just going to be Jack here. The last thing I want to talk about with Sally here in this narration, and right off the bat, we basically get this another pretty literal metaphor here. I was getting Rapunzel vibes here, tangled, if you will, of Sally as she literally jumps out of the tower. Now, of course, she's doing it through a a Sally perspective of reconstructing her limbs, but that's basically what she's doing. She's escaping this tower. She's escaping this emotional abuse, if you will. And I think it is emotional just looking at Dr. Finkelstein. I mean, the guy's, he's in a wheelchair. It's a tower with tons of stairs. I mean, it, it would be impossible for him to be able to climb down the stairs to meet Sally. So I think it's definitely this emotional abuse here. So literally Sally falling off, Rapunzel gets her freedom. And it's interesting about this Christmas tree. I mean, she basically goes and holds this flower and it becomes a Christmas image. And that burns. What were your theories behind why this had appeared, what this was about? I feel like Jack's experiments and his bringing these artifacts from the Christmas town into Halloween town, it's almost like they're sort of, they've contaminated the Halloween town. Like they're not supposed to be there. And I feel like the more that Jack meddles with it, it's causing some sort of strange reaction between the two holidays. So, you know, she's out there plucking this, like, dead flower, which would be common for the Halloween town. And then it transforms into this Christmas image, but then that also lights on fire. So it's sort of, like, just suggesting that it can't survive here, like, it's not meant to be here, and that it's, like, contaminating the environment. It's sort of like um, like an invasive species, I guess. So that's the best that I could come up with. It's a, it's a dramatic uh, symbol, but I think it works pretty well. I agree with you. And we do learn that this is, she sees it as a vision of sorts, whether or not it's a vision or not, we don't know. We don't know about her having any magical powers, but that's how she considers it. She sees it as an omen, really, that Halloween's going to go in a terrible way, that Jack's decision to do this is going to go in a terrible way. And I think you're right that there is this infection of sorts between the Halloween and Christmas towns, because Right before this scene, we do see Sally bring up the gift to Jack in a way that is something that you do in Christmas, right? Giving gifts. And then from there, we go straight into her seeing that image. So it's kind of like they are mixing worlds in a way and things are kind of happening in this, these parallel dimensions are kind of overlapping and it's just causing a ton of issues, tons of problems here. So whatever Jack's doing, he needs to stop doing. The mixing is not working, but unfortunately, Jack's not, again, he's, he's manic. He's not seeing it for that. And so therefore, there's going to be more pain before there's joy here. I did also want to mention about Locke, Shock, and Barrel here, these characters. I mean, they're, they're terrifying. And they're, they're actually probably as terrifying as their masks are. I, when they took their masks off, one is, again, why is Jack trusting him when one literally has a Satan devil 
mask on their face. But when they take the masks off, they're just as evil and, and terrifying. And I remember them in the Kingdom Hearts game being absolutely horrific. And so I was, what were your thoughts on these characters right off the bat? <laughs> well, you know, they're, they're not horrific from the point of view of Halloween Town of Jack. So I feel like he probably wouldn't be put off by that at all. But but yeah, for our point of view, yeah, they're they're terrifying. And they're also these like really mischievous, you know, sort of like children characters, which, you know, I feel like they're I mean, they're singing about like doing all this stuff like with uh, with Sandy Claus. They're going to like capture him and like eat him or like feed him to Oogie Boogie or whatever. They're pretty bad dudes. I mean, they, they've really got some bad plans up ahead for Sandy Claus. It's just so funny that Jack in any even with his mania that he's going through in any sort of reality imagined that he could trust these guys. <laughs> like they're his best. Like, why does he pick them? Like there's so many other people he could pick and he doesn't even think about it. He just sends them out. So, I mean, I, I guess it's just Jack's just really bad at making decisions <laughs> or like really bad at reading people. I don't know, but yeah, rough, rough choice here. Yeah, and he called for them by name. I mean, he specifically <laughs> requested these people. I think, again, I think in his mind, he knew obviously kidnapping Sandy Claus is going to be a, a mischievous thing. So why not bring in the mischievous people? But again, when you're recruiting bandits, you're not going to be able to trust them. Needless to say here. And we get that Sandy Claus song that they're singing on their way, marching with their bathtub with legs, which is a cute little figure there. And then we cut to Jack. He's trying to teach jingle bells with these little silver bells with an act, like actual bells from Christmas town to the trio band. And we hadn't talked about the trio band yet. Bone daddy is one of my favorite characters. He's this old man with his big nose, but it's this like trio that plays music. And basically it's a saxophone. It's a cello and it's a accordion. Those are the, those are the instruments that they have for Halloween town. And they sound really cool. And they're playing randomly throughout. They're a trio that consistently plays music throughout. And here Jack's trying to teach him jingle bells. And it just, it sounds exactly as bad as you would think. It just, they can't do it because it's just not a jolly. These aren't jolly instruments and they have no idea what they're doing. Sandy then tells Jack about what she calls her vision about the upcoming Christmas decisions he's making, showing about the smoke and the fire that she saw all these terrible images. Jack refuses to see anything that he's doing as a problem because he has his really good Sandy Claus outfit. He finally found what he needed to look like Santa Claus. Lock, Shock, and Barrel eventually come back with Sandy Claus in a sack in their bathtub. Unfortunately, when they open the bag up, it's the Easter Bunny. Jack gets really upset with them for failing in their mission. Take him back. We followed your instructions. We went through the door. Which door? There's more than one. Sandy Claus is behind a door shaped like this. I told you. And he does this really terrifying face where he pulls his cheeks out. And they actually get scared by him doing this, really showing his dominance here in the fright department. He then politely apologizes to the Easter Bunny, and then he sends Lock, Shock, and Barrel back to get Sandy Claus, and he instructs them to treat him nicely and make sure that he's comfortable. We then cut to Dr. Finkelstein, and he's making a new Sally, a new wife, a new person of interest who can be his lackey. His loyal servant, Igor, brings him plans for the reindeer that Jack has given him up, the blueprints of what these reindeer are going to look like, and so he begins the construction. We then cut back to Christmas Town and we get a song from the villagers singing about preparing for Christmas called 
Making Christmas. We get this nice montage of their creations. Making Christmas, making Christmas, it's so fine. It's ours this time, and won't the children be surprised? It's ours this time. We get a cut to a countdown towards Christmas that's located in Halloween Town, kind of showing the days that it's going by. We now see ultimately that there's 11 days left prior to Christmas. And then we get this song, Making Christmas. We get a montage of them kind of preparing for the Halloween Town version of Christmas, which is again going to be. It's a perversion on Christmas. Essentially, they're using a guillotine on dolls to end up changing their heads. We have blood and fangs on a duck. We have a dead rat that gets turned into a delightful hat. It's actually funny because this rat, basically Jack says that's too terrible to use. So instead, we're going to use a bat for it. So the rat was too grotesque, but hey, a bat, no problem. They put a dead scorpion into a Russian nesting doll. One of these dolls where you have a big one and it goes smaller, smaller, smaller. But at the very end, you're going to get this nice dead scorpion here. We then get a cut to Christmas Town and what the elves are doing in Christmas Town to prepare for Christmas. We do see that there's 11 days left here and the elves are preparing toys standard the way we would expect. You know, gingerbread cookies are being created, different toys. We cut back to Dr. Finkelstein. He's making the reindeer like it's Frankenstein. Again, he's trying to electrocute them, bring them to life. This is his newfound creation. We then cut back to Christmas Town, where they're wrapping up nice toys, they're polishing their sleigh, and then Halloween Town, they get the scary gifts. So we have this back and forth dichotomy. You understand the idea here. They're showing the, the difference between both towns preparing for Christmas. Eventually, when the song ends, it shows only one day left before Christmas. So it's game time. It's Christmas Eve here. Well, to me, this is very much what I would refer to as a montage. We're gonna need a montage. I'm a big fan of montages, as you might know if you've listened to the show for a while. It's fun seeing the back and forth. I love especially the weird ways that the Halloween town sort of like corrupts the stuff from the Christmas town. It's the stuff that you wouldn't expect, like the Russian nesting doll I thought was really funny. Um, There's another creature that we see. I think we may have seen him before, but he doesn't really have much in the way of lines or anything. But he's like this big dude that just has like an axe in his head. It's just like sticking out of his head at all times. And I looked him up. I think he's called Behemoth is his name. I think he did something with like a nutcracker in the scene. Uh, So I just wanted to give a shout out to the dude with the axe in his head. I just thought he was kind of fun. The, The part where the kids end up capturing the Easter Bunny by mistake I think is a really good job of showing how they have literally no idea what they're doing or any idea of what any of this Christmas stuff actually means whatsoever. In the Christmas town, we do see a lot of toys being prepared. They're doing, you know, stocking stuffers, stuff like that. Uh, I think we talked about this last year, but I, I thought I'd bring it up again. Stockings, stocking stuffers, that whole thing, that can be pretty nostalgic. For me in my family, we would get the stockings. Like my mom and dad would let me open up my stocking while I was waiting for them to come down in the morning because I was always up ready to open presents like way too early. So I would open that up on my own and sort of amuse myself with whatever was in there first. For me, it was mainly 
candy. Sometimes there'd be little items, little dollar store items, little toys, things like that. Occasionally, even some cash money would be in the stocking, which was always appreciated. What was your experience growing up? Like, when did the stockings get opened up? Like, did did you display them? Like, you stereotypically are supposed to have them hung up and everything. We didn't really have, like, a real mantle in my house. So, we, they would just lay it down under the tree with the presents. Um, what did you guys do with that stuff? Well, when in my family, my with my kids, we actually do have a fireplace, so we would use the mantle. Although now we typically don't even do stockings in my family just because we go to the different Christmases at my parents' or her family's place and do different Christmas stuff with that. So we typically have kind of reserved the presents and stuff for those things. Growing up in my family, you know, with my parents and siblings, stocking traditions goaded. I mean, it's, it's a necessary part. We originally, I think we had some kind of like electric fireplace for a period of time, which we would use. And then it just went up above the windows, but yeah, definitely there the whole time getting to see them stuffed to the max was always awesome. It's like the perfect appetizer before a dinner. And that's really how I saw it. And so, yeah, like you said, candy, something to chew on, eat along the way, little gifts here, little trinkets here that you could get at a dollar tree, dollar general, which aren't going to cost a lot of money, but are thoughtful and just something to whet your appetite, you know, before the Christmas gifts are going. And so, yeah, I love the stocking tradition. Got to keep it going. If, if only just for the candy that you could be munching or gift cards, little stuff like that, which are good gifts, but you don't want the pressure of you're the one opening in and it's not some major gift, but there's still nice little trinkets that you can enjoy before the, the big celebration. Yeah. Gift cards are great. Uh, we still get the stockings even now. Uh, you know, my wife and I receive stockings from my parents every year and yeah, they find some pretty good stuff to put in there. And, you know, you get the gift cards. I think it's a perfect place to put those. So still a big fan of the stockings. And yeah, I think that here they do a good job of going back and forth, letting us get a little bit of each holiday. I did like the imagery here with the Jingle Bell song and the instruments, though in our narration split up connecting directly to that theme of just a, a hammer and, and a nail. And it's like trying to play a, a Beethoven symphony here with the tuba. These guys can't do it without the actual bells itself. You need Jack has to understand this still refusing to do so. And I did think it was interesting with lock shock and barrel here and them leaving here to go get Sandy Claus. They say to Jack, don't worry, we'll get it right next time. And so it's this implication that they're acknowledging their mistake and they'll do it right here. But then there's also the implication that they're planning to mess this up too. And they're talking about the time after this. So that was kind of interesting to me. And it got me thinking about the idea, even just with my wife and I, we have confusion and maybe you could offer your perspective on what this week and next week means. Let's talk about day, right? Let's say it's, so today's Saturday, right? You're talking about, let's talk about Thursday. How would you reference the upcoming Thursday? What would you call it? I would call it this Thursday, like this coming Thursday. See, that's the confusion because my wife would say it's the next Thursday. That's the next Thursday. No, no, it's this Thursday. She doesn't have the distinguishing between this and next. So she would say next because it's technically is the next Thursday, right? Like it's not wrong. Why do we always, like, why do I have that and you have that where we say this Thursday to mean the upcoming one and then the, the Thursday after, you know what I mean? Well, because it's, there's no other Thursdays in between here and then, you know, if if it was, but it is the next Thursday, right? So why not say next Thursday? 
I don't know. I feel like next Thursday implies that it's that there's like another Thursday there first. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's the implication the that Thursday, there is like, this existence of a Thursday that we know is coming yes. up. So I'm not talking yes. about that one because that's right. being contemplated. Already. Yes, it's because we would just one. call it Thursday because that's what it should be. Yeah, you wouldn't call it next Thursday. You'd call it Thursday. Correct. Like if yeah. you, if if since it's Saturday, right? If somebody said to me. What are you doing on Thursday? I would not assume that they mean like, what did I do like two days ago? I'm going to assume that they're talking about what am I doing in the, in the, in this, uh, the next opportunity for a Thursday, right? So it's Thursday. Next Thursday is the one after it because there has to be a Thursday before you can have a next Thursday. You know what I mean? So like, I would argue that if it's within the week, like that it's not next it's just the name of the day it's monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday saturday sunday next monday tuesday wednesday you know what i mean like that's how that would work yeah i know what you mean cuz I, I that's yeah. how i do it too I yeah. just use dates now, <laughs> you know, like I told smart. You know, yeah, smart move. 10 17 or whatever <laughs> that we yeah, don't have yeah, to worry yeah. about it. So how, how did you take this here from, from lock, shock and barrel? I mean, did you take it as when they said next time as they're walking away that it was to apply to this mission to get Sandy Claus or the mission thereafter, or, or is it ambiguous enough where you don't have a take on it? So I, I didn't really have a take on it. I think that, in light of what we just discussed, it, it suggests that they might be planning on screwing it up again. Like it's a joke, sort of. Um, but it really depends on how Tim Burton falls into our debate. <laughs> because if he agrees with us, then that's what it means. It's a joke that they're going to screw up like their current mission, and then they're going to have to do the next time. But if he agrees with your wife, then, I mean, I guess they're just saying they'll do better right now. So um, hard to say. Which, which is what they would say, right? I'm doing better this time. We'll do better this yes, time, right? This they would time, say that because not next time. they're already in that process. In that time. Doing it's it. happening right now. The okay. process has begun already. Yeah, exactly. Well, when we get Tim Burton. I, I think <laughs> honestly, like, <laughs> it's like, it's funny because like on one hand, like I can understand where the confusion comes in, but I feel like really, really strongly that the way that I'm doing it is the right way. Like I don't make a whole lot of room for like, for the other viewpoint on this one. <laughs> and, and it's not even really logical. Cause no. <laughs> like I can see how that would make sense too, but it just feels wrong to me. It just feels wrong. Yeah, it seems like a, a random custom. I'm not sure how it established, but yeah, I agree that to me, it's just the way you do things. And I'm sure from her perspective, that's just the way you do things. And like logically, I think we can both make arguments, but it is an interesting way to look at it. And I well, definitely just, saw it as they were messing up think, this time. Like, <laughs> well, here, because my thing is, if you're talking about, if you're going to say next Thursday to mean the one that is coming up like soon, then when do we ever just use Thursday? Like, when do we ever just say on Thursday? Like, it's redundant to say next Thursday. It's redundant, exactly. That's like the economy of language there is what I'm saying. Hmm. So I, I think that's the argument. That, to me, is proof that our way is correct. We're just, of course we're, I mean, uh, yeah. unexpectedly, we're objectively correct again. I mean, it just yes. seems like this is just what happens all the time. 
every All time. time. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> this is the only way to see this. I feel like we should get like a rebuttal, like for the next, like, like make this for a thing that goes on content, for like, get, yeah, yeah. Get the other side. <laughs> like every every episode, we come back to this and like won't let it go. It'd be pretty funny. I mean, the argument is it's the it is technically the next Thursday. I mean, that's no, it's wrong. So. It's wrong though. It is wrong because it's not. Then what it is is Thursday. It's just Thursday. That's it. <laughs> like that, that. That's where I'm coming down on it. Yeah, I agree. You know? All right. We see Santa Claus going over his list in Christmas Town. He's getting ready for Christmas. He hears his doorbell ring and he opens it. Unfortunately, it's Lock, Shock, and Barrel. And also, unfortunately, we see a sack get thrown over his head. We see it from Santa's vantage point, and this this bag envelops him. The kidnapping is complete. Mission accomplished here for Lock, Shock, and Barrel. We cut to Sally trying to talk Jack out of doing this. You don't look like yourself, Jack. Not at all. Isn't that wonderful? It couldn't be more wonderful. But you're the Pumpkin King. Not anymore. And I feel so much better now. She's still very adamant that he does not blend the holidays here, but her efforts are futile. He's going to continue to go forward. Santa Claus, Sandy Claus, whoever you choose to view him here, is brought to Jack by Lock, Shock, and Barrel. Jack informs Santa Claus that he's off duty this year, that he's going to be taking over control. He then tells Lock, Shock, and Barrel to go take him away to someplace comfortable. Lock, Shock, and Barrel, of course, say Oogie Boogie's place is comfortable, and so they kind of misconstrue what Jack had said, and they're on a quest to bring him to Oogie Boogie. Sally is still trying to stop Jack from doing this, and so she grabs some fog juice thinking that will be enough to stop Jack. She sneaks out of the tower after seeing Dr. Finkelstein creating the new Sally. He had ended up giving her half of his brain to have worthwhile conversations, and so that process is going on, but Sally's out trying to protect Halloween, protect Jack, and even protect Christmas. We cut to Lock, Shock, and Barrel. They're taking Santa Claus to Oogie Boogie. They throw him down a pipe with a plunger akin to a Christmas chimney, if you will, and then he lands in Oogie's place. Oogie Boogie is a potato sack of sorts with a face, and his entire place is based in, it's kind of like a casino, it's got dice and the like, it has card imagery everywhere, and it's dark, and everything around it is glow-in-the-dark, very cool, very epic, and Oogie, he's, he's a gambling man, he likes to do it. To an extent, at this point, Oogie Boogie actually presents as green on stage, even the sack itself is glow-in-the-dark. He ends up singing a song. Mr. Oogie Boogie says there's trouble close at hand. You better pay attention now, cause I'm the boogeyman. And if you aren't shaking, there's something very wrong. Cause this may be the last time you hear the boogie song. Very colorful, showing you his amazing lair with, again, the -the glow-in-the-dark colors everywhere. Santa Claus is tied up, and he's having to see all of this imagery in an effort to scare him, in an effort to basically say, hey, I got you, Santa, you're mine. They sing back and forth, Oogie Boogie and Santa. Santa basically saying, hey, let me go. And Oogie's saying, you're not going anywhere. You're mine now, Santa Claus. From Oogie's lair, we cut back to Halloween Town. The trio here is playing Here Comes Santa Claus as everyone gets ready for Jack to deliver the gifts. The fog juice that Sally had taken from the tower, she pours into the fountain to create a fog so that Jack's unable to see his way through the sky with his reindeer. At this point, he realizes that none other than Zero 
has a very special nose and is able to help him guide through the night. Potentially some imagery implicated here. At this point, Jack takes off. He flies to deliver gifts as Santa Claus. When he leaves, we get this solo song, soliloquy of sorts from Sally. I sense there's something in the wind that feels like tragedies at hand. And though I'd like to stand by him, can't shake this feeling that I have. Lamenting her loss of Jack unrequited love and fear of what will happen based on her visions and her negative premonition. She really is afraid of everything here. We cut to Jack delivering the gifts and we get the true gift here, which is a montage. He goes house to house, giving terrifying gifts to children. For example, one gets a shrunken head. Another gets the evil duck with the blood off of its fangs. One gets a vampire doll. And obviously these children are terrified. The families are terrified. And so we see that the police department is getting calls from these families about terrifying toys. They're attacking the children, etc. At this point, things start to escalate. They end up getting the military involved to try to shoot down whatever is doing this. Jack in the sky with his reindeer and sled. And so the military is just taking shots at him left and right. Jack is still delusional. such a good job. So he thinks that these shots in the air, these ballistic missiles are fireworks celebrating what he's doing. While Jack's doing this, we see Sally herself is beginning an investigation to find Santa Claus. She's not given up hope. So she feels if she finds Santa Claus, that everything will get fixed. Sally's plan involves going to Oogie's lair. She ended up putting a leg through a gate to entice Oogie Boogie. When Oogie Boogie went to go investigate Sally's leg, that's when Sally used her arms to end up untying Santa Claus and to bring him up over a ladder that she had been at. Eventually, Oogie Boogie realizes that the leg was nothing but a decoy, a distraction to take him away from Santa Claus, and he gets upset. He ends up sucking them off the ladder into his lair like some gigantic vacuum cleaner. They're not going to be able to escape. Eventually, Jack gets shot down by the artillery, and then he realizes that this was intentional. They were trying to shoot him down. And then we kind of get the dichotomy here from both towns' perspective on what's happening. We have Halloween Town sad because they think that Jack has been blown up, and Christmas Town sad and basically being canceled because they still don't know where Santa is. We do, however, see a shot of Jack and that he is alive. He begins singing a song about how his actions had spoiled both Halloween and Christmas Town. But I never intended all this madness. Never. And nobody really understood. Well, how could they? That all I ever wanted was to bring them something great. Why does nothing ever turn out like it should? But the song ends up turning into a song of triumph as Jack begins to accept himself as the Pumpkin King with a newfound rigor. He still, however, knows that he needs to set things right, both with Halloween Town and with Santa Claus, to make sure that his actions don't have dire consequences. So, I mean, I've just got to point out, you mentioned about, you know, the Halloween Town being sad that Jack was blown up. Specifically, the mayor is going around the town announcing, quote, Jack has been blown to smithereens. 
So I just thought that was a quote worthy of being repeated. This whole thing with Oogie Boogie holding Santa prisoner, why do you think that Santa seems completely helpless? Like, he's totally, like, weak and has no way of fighting against Oogie Boogie. Is that because he's, like, somehow lost his powers being in the Halloween town? Or, like, what's the deal with Santa sort of just being a victim here? Yeah, I think that's probably a good explanation for it. He's just in foreign territory. I know Santa kind of puffs his chest out like, do you know who I am? You can't do this to me as they're singing their song back and forth. But yeah, Santa doesn't have any power here. I'm assuming that's why, but it didn't really bother me all that much just because it's, you know, Santa's powers. We're not really sure beyond what we know of, you know, being able to squeeze into chimneys and fly a sleigh and whatever. Would he have escapist powers here? It makes sense that he would, I guess. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I don't view Santa Claus as like a Superman type character here. I do think he would have some fragility, but I think you're probably right. He loses his powers coming in here and he only even opened that door in Christmas town to be captured by opening the door and seeing kids and probably viewing them in a loving, joyful way. And so in, in that regard, he maybe was destroyed by his own kindness and then brought into a place like Samson where he lost all his strength here and he's unable to utilize what he needs to do in order to save Christmas. Speaking of saving Christmas, I love how intense the escalation is <laughs> like for like when Jack is doing all this, because you know, he's going around, he's dropping off these presents. Uh, the presents are terrorizing these children. And then it goes to, the actual military coming in and like firing missiles and blowing him out of the sky. Like the whole thing just escalates so quick and it gets like so intense. I just thought that was a hilarious choice that they decided to actually bring in military intervention to stop Jack. It's just, it's great. I love it. Oh, and one other thing (laughs) that I loved from this escalation scene Uh, is that there is a black rotary phone. There are actually several of them, old school phones on the the desk that are getting the calls from all of the people that are freaking out about the presents that are terrorizing them. So it's another shout out to some old tech. Gotta love some old tech in my movies. So nice job on that. Kind of reminded me, you know, of the police officer getting the call home alone with the donut or whatever. (laughs) We'll talk about that later. And then Christmas vacation in terms of the, comedy behind the sleigh and having the artillery shells. So yeah, we get some humor here for sure with this escalation. Well, the thing that's amazing is that the police and the military, they actually effectively like do something like how many movies do we watch where the authorities are completely incompetent or useless, or they can't be contacted for whatever, you know, plot reason. Cause it would make things too easy. Here we get them full force just blowing Jack out of the sky. I mean, I don't know if I've ever seen a more effective appeal to the authorities in any movie ever, really. Well, we do know in uh, Christmas Vacation, at least, you know, the boss gets the entire SWAT team into the house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair point. That is also pretty good. You know, also, shout out to Zero. Basically is the hero of the story. He's going to be able to guide the sleigh. Uh, He also, though, is the one that wakes Jack up after he has crashed out of the sky because he's laying on the ground there and Zero comes in, finds him, wakes him up, and that's the only reason that he actually gets up after getting shot down. If he had been even a second later, probably Jack would not be in time 
to go and intervene with Oogie Boogie and Santa. So got to give Zero basically magic carpet vibes here <laughs> for Zero. I mean, he's pretty much like the, you know, the clutch, like real hero of the movie that is sort of like underappreciated, uh, you know, by all the other characters. So got to give him some credit. I'm thinking of like the Denny Green speech, crown him. You know, we knew who they thought they were, crown him. We know yeah. Zero here is that he's got the magic carpet status. I'm not going to dispute that at all. I mean, he flies. I mean, he he very much, he literally is like the magic carpet. I mean, in many ways. Very interesting about the artillery, even in general. Another representation, just how Jack could see literally the opposite based on his lack of understanding on the different worlds, based on his ignorance, thinking that this would be fireworks. Again, just showing Jack's in a different realm here, seeing the very issues of his destruction as being a one of celebration, just showing again how very much everything's about perspective and how Jack really lacks that perspective. And I didn't think it was interesting that when he falls, more here, here's some religious imagery here. He falls and he falls into an angel statue. So here we have Jack is this fallen angel of sorts, leaving basically what he had, which was Pumpkin King, Halloween Town, his heaven, if you will, falling into an angel's grasp. Very good imagery here of kind of, of the fall from grace here for Jack, but also maybe that it is an angel, could also be a guardian angel protecting Jack from X, Y, or Z so that he can then begin his renewed vigor into Halloween Town. So it also then presents imagery of potential triumph here as Jack's kind of being held up so he can go and do his mission because his quest is not done. Even though he has failed, he still has more to do. So he may have fallen, but he's definitely got to get up. He's got some more stuff that he needs to do. I do like the imagery. Uh, I didn't really pay as much attention to the angel. So I think that that's a really good point. And it actually kind of reminds me of Hocus Pocus a little bit because that movie as sort of a, the climax of the film is in a cemetery. It's in this graveyard with all these statues and everything. And this is not the final climax of the movie, because again, he still has to go and deal with Oogie Boogie, but still a pivotal scene taking place in the cemetery. Again, this is Disney going goth in 1993. This isn't the only piece of religious imagery that we get from Tim Burton here. I also got that with Dr. Finkelstein and him creating his new creature. This is the first creature. He actually takes half of his brain and puts it in her. It kind of took me back to Genesis with Adam and Eve and the rib. And that's kind of what we're going here, where it's like flesh of my flesh type issue, where this creation might be a little bit different. And that's a pretty substantial sacrifice to cut half your brain off. But presumably he wants, a, he's decided he wants this new creation to be someone of him, someone he can get along with, his soulmate, if you will, someone who's more akin to what he needs in his life, as opposed to Sally, which again, makes me kind of wonder, you know, what's in Sally's head, what he was doing with that. But these are, that's another type of imagery here where this creation is definitely a bit different from how Sally was. I will just point out that that's not how brains work, but I guess that, uh, you know, we don't need to get too deep into that. I'll just state that you do need both hemispheres of your brain in order to function as a human. You can't just like give up half and be cool with it. Um, but I guess Dr. Finkelstein plays by different rules. From this graveyard scene with Jack, we cut back to Oogie Boogie's lair. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Oh, I'm feeling weak with hunger. One more roll of the dice ought to do it. <laughs> Sally and Santa are tied up on this table of some sort. And it doesn't look too good for him. There seems to be some sort of a stew brewing some hot liquid like lava. 
being stirred. And the table is basically designed where Oogie can push a lever and ratchet it upwards. So the angle makes it more and more likely that at some point they will slide into the stew and be cooked. And so he's rolling dice here. And based on whatever roll he gets, he's ratcheting it up. I mean, ultimately, the point is they're going to be cooked and stirred into some creation of some sort. Eventually, as Oogie's rolling, they are to fall in the stew, but when he actually turns the table around, he sees that Jack is on it, and Oogie kind of gets a shock. He's frightened of Jack. Jack, again, with his power in Halloween Town, instilling fright in even the scariest of creatures. Oogie, at this point, presses a trap button, and this table area that he was on begins spinning. It's surrounded by this wall of playing cards that have swords in them, and so Jack's kind of just trying to survive this trap that Oogie has devised. He's dodging shooting cowboys. He's dodging the playing cards with swords. Ultimately, Jack dodges the spinning saw swinging from the ceiling. It's at this point that Oogie's higher up, and as Oogie goes up to kind of escape Jack, Jack ends up grabbing a loose string from Boogie's sack-like body. And eventually Jack ties the string around the spinning circle. And so slowly, Oogie Boogie is being unraveled at his core. Now look what you've done! My As he's being unraveled, we see that he was filled up with bugs. So these bugs start pouring out of him all over the ground and into the stew eventually. Whatever they were supposed to go into, that's where Oogie Boogie ended up being put into. Obviously, the sack was serving as a skeleton of some sort for him. So once that sack was gone, he just poured out. We're last seen with one bug kind of roaming around, taking me back to the cell games in Dragon Ball Z with the last cell. But there's this last bug crawling around, and then none other than Santa Claus steps on the bug. And so it's symbolic of Santa Claus defeating or conquering Oogie Boogie here. At this point, Jack apologizes to Santa. Eventually, Santa goes to fix Christmas. He says he can do it because he's Santa Claus. He can do it the night before because he has that type of power. There's hope for those children. Sally and Jack then begin speaking with one another. Sally acknowledges that she was down there just to help Jack. Jack begins to realize Sally's love, but then all of a sudden the mayor comes in and interrupts them in celebration because he has found Jack, who they had thought was dead. We get another montage of Santa delivering all these presents, all the good presents that the children were supposed to get, fixing Christmas. We then cut to Jack revealing himself to Halloween Town, and everyone celebrates. Everything is gone back to what it was. We end with the What's This song as Santa flies over in Halloween Town saying, Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween! Merry Christmas! He ends up leaving snow falling down. And so Halloween Town's being covered in snow at this point while everyone's singing, What's This? We end the movie here with Sally. She's sitting atop a hill. She has her flower that she had from the beginning of the movie, and she's picking petals from it. Jack slowly approaches her, singing a love song. My dearest friend, if you don't mind, I'd like to join you by your side, where we can gaze into the stars and sit together now and forever. As they sing and acknowledge their love for one another, our final shot is of Zero flying away 
into the sky and into the credits. Obviously, just have to mention, uh, during the scene when Santa is fixing all of the presents for the kids, one of the kids gets a puppy. Must have been a really good kid, whoever that was. But yeah, I think that this ending is a lot of fun. Uh, The scene in Oogie Boogie's lair is pretty intense, pretty crazy. I was sort of wondering, why does Oogie Boogie have this association with dice and gambling? Like, what does that have to do with Halloween or scariness or anything? He also has all these mechanical things in his lair, um, which I guess could kind of go along with, like, a mad scientist vibe, like Dr. Finkelstein we saw before. But the gambling, I'm kind of at a loss. Like, I can't think of anything where gambling is related to Halloween, really. Yeah, it's not terribly connected. I mean, it is a vice, we also have the Sally scene with her leg, another vice. And so it just seems like these are vices that Oogie Boogie has, you know, maybe gluttony here with the stew and whatnot. So they're just throwing vices and it looks really cool. But it is a vice that they associate with the evil character. But that's about as far as I could get. The rest of it just, it looks really cool and I'm fine with it. And I can connect it with, hey, you know, this is this is a vice and, and Oogie Boogie's the bad guy. And that about ends my inquiry in it. But I had the same issue because they're very much on the casino theme almost exclusively and then the traps come in involving the casino theme and it's just you know they have the roulette wheel even with the spinning and everything and so it's just very much it it was an interesting choice here to go with that but yeah he's he's this las vegas dude i guess yeah the whole uh the whole casino thing um it sort of reminds me of in sonic 2 the casino night level, which is probably one of the best levels of all time. Uh, so got to give a shout out to that. Um, Santa here does have magic. He uses it at the end, like once he's freed and everything, but I guess being imprisoned or tied up for some reason, he can't use it. So, I mean, that's just another limitation that he has, but once he does go off, The main thing that's associated with him is snow. He makes it snow over Halloween Town. It snows everywhere. And of course, we have this tight connection with snow and Christmas and winter and all of those sorts of things. I feel like Christmas must be a really strange event for people that live in warm places. um, Because I feel like it would be really bizarre to have a Christmas that was not at least cold. Um, I do know around here, around Pittsburgh, I mean, it sometimes snows at Christmas. It doesn't happen all the time. Um, it ha- I feel like it happens less and less now with climate change and everything. It keeps getting warmer during the winter, which is not great. But uh, at least you have the hope and the possibility of, a, of there being snow. And then At the very least, it's normally cold. At least it gives you, like, the vibes of it being winter. So, but I've never been in a place other than here, really, or nearby, like, during Christmas, to imagine not having at least the possibility of snow and of winter-type vibes happening. Uh, I feel like that's such an integral part of the holiday. I don't know how you could do without it. No, I agree. And it's, it's hard when you don't have snow come Christmas time. And yeah, it's, I mean, I can't even remember the last white Christmas. It's maybe, maybe it was recent, but you'll go several years without it. And I've only celebrated Christmas around Ohio PA area where it is cold. I can't imagine being in a place like Arizona 
because the temperature matters so much. I mean, and again, a lot of those seasonal activities you do like sledding, building a snowman, those things you need snow for. If you don't get snow, you can't. But even just this past year, it was really hard to find. There's maybe one day prior to Christmas of good sledding that you could get. And that was it. It, it, it. You need to have several days coming together. And then at this point, the snow really doesn't come until after Christmas, January, February or far colder months around here. And that's really where you get the bitterness of it. So you, I don't know. It's it's something I think the temperature has been so, I'm so used to it, but yeah, you need to have it. Otherwise you do miss some of that magic that you could have otherwise. But I, I want to be able to have a Christmas morning where my kids can go outside and kind of make snow angels and whatnot. It's kind of devastating because, I mean, it's just so much, like, warming is happening. And, like, even in the fall, you know, you want, like, a nice chill in the air. You want a little jacket weather. Uh, And, you know, this past week it was, like, 80 degrees one of the days, and it was in October. So that's getting messed up. And then Christmas time stuff is getting messed up because, like you said, even around here, or conceivably it could and should snow, a lot of times it's in January, February now. Uh, and, like, last year, we we got, like, no snow at all. I think we had, like, a couple days with snow. I mean, it was uh, of any amount that actually, you know, like, laid on the ground for any amount of time. So that's just really not great. Um, I don't love that development. I feel like back in the 90s, when we were when we were little... I feel like it was always snowing at Christmas time. I feel like it was always cold and snowing and and you had the vibes and maybe if not even on the day, at least around the time in December, it would snow and we're starting to lose that, which is really sad. Uh, And in the end of this movie, the snow is kind of like the main image that you're left with. So that's just something that struck me a lot, especially with it being warmer in the past couple of years. Yeah, it definitely blankets the season, if you will. Uh, pun intended, of what Christmas is about. It's, it really does stand out here. And yeah, it is it is interesting how you have Halloween Town existing, but you do get this connection then with Christmas. Because obviously, if you had snow around Halloween, that would just be out of place. And so you have this blending of towns in the end, to an extent, right? You have Jack saying Merry Christmas. You have Santa saying Happy Halloween. But they're able to still stay in their lanes while acknowledging each other's existence while still maintain the season. So it's this cohabitation we're about to have, even just in this final scene, we do have what's this that they're singing when the snow comes, but it is also, they do a little medley here with this is Halloween. So they actually combine the two songs. This is Halloween was what we were introduced to. That was that song. And what's this is what we were introduced to song wise when Jack first came into Christmas town. So here we have the two songs associated with each town while the snow's falling in Halloween town coupled with this song singing and it's just great imagery of how they're going to be able to maintain some mix, but at the same time maintaining their essences. Another great blend here is with Jack and Sally in this final scene. The song Sally sang in sadness in the more middle end of the movie where she was lamenting Jack going away to deliver the presents. That sad song here is the exact same song that Jack's singing but it's song from a standpoint of love. So really good imagery here about how a sad song, originally the soliloquy of Sally, can end up becoming a love song. Love kind of curing everything here in this moment can transform a sadness into joy. Also of note here is the actual flower. So Sally's on top of the hill and she's on this flower pulling petals. Now the pulling the petals is not not random. I don't know if you remember, but it is that 
she loves me or he loves me, he loves me not type thing that people would do. I remember it being a thing. I never did it myself, but you basically pull petals. It was a French, it, you know, it's, its origin is a French tradition where if you want to know if someone liked you, you get a flower, say he loves me, he loves me not, she loves me, she loves me not, pulling petals off. And then whatever you last pulled would be whether or not the person loves you or not. It's, it's an old tradition here. But if you actually look at what Sally's doing when she's pulling the petals here, eventually she eventually pulls one petal saying he loves me, pulls another petal, he loves me not. She pulls another petal, he loves me. Before she can pull away the he loves me not pedal, the fourth pedal here, that's when Jack starts singing. That's when she turns around and that's when she ends up tossing the flower off the hill. So she never actually pulled that fourth flower. But if you look at the flower as it's falling before or as she tosses it away, you'd see that the flower actually has four more petals on it. And so if she had continued pulling, the flower would have ended up with he loves me. It's a very interesting thing here, tying in some of the nostalgia there. And it's also interesting about the flower itself. Now, this is a flower that basically just imagery wise, it's a thistle, right? It's a thistle. And so it has this beautiful purple flower in the middle, and then it's surrounded kind of by this, this spikes all around it. Kind of like Sally in a way, a beautiful soul, but at the same time, she looks like a, a mannequin pulling herself together. There's a lot of weird things about her, creepiness about her, but a beautiful soul. And that's this, this flower. And so I actually looked up the flower. The flower itself that we're talking about is the Scottish thistle. And it's actually the national flower of Scotland. And it really represents strength and resolve. That's really what this flower represents. And that's Sally in the movie as well, right? She's strengthening Jack to be being the Halloween king the pumpkin king here and his resolve to maintain his role as the pumpkin king. And that's as opposed to him changing, as opposed to him kind of being something he's not. So a lot of cool imagery here with this flower and this flower petal to tie it all in here to Sally's role and then her romance with Jack. And it's relieving to see Jack sort of taking up his mantle as the pumpkin king again, hopefully with Sally by his side he won't go off the deep end like he did before although there were still a lot of other holiday doors that he could open up and cause some mischief with the saint patrick's door the thanksgiving one who knows the valentine's one that would be a disaster there were a lot of opportunities for sequels here but they didn't take them they just did this one and that was it and it's been the only one for 30 years now so pretty impressive i mean it seems like Nowadays, we're at a place where everything is getting a sequel or a reboot, you know, 30 years after the fact. But I don't know, maybe one of these days they'll come out with another one. It does seem like when we cover something on the pod, it means that it's going to come back. So maybe it looks like Paul right now is actually checking up on it. Is there going to be a sequel that we did not know about? Dude, I'm, I mean, I'm seeing it happening. I'm actually seeing it happening. Oh, no. No, I, I'm not going to oh, verify okay. these sources, but now we're going to have to. I think it might be happening. Yeah, wow. That's that's kind of crazy. It's happening. Um, I don't know if I like that, man, because <laughs> we do not have a good track record uh, when these things happen. I feel like this is going to be a mess. We could see Santa going to do it in reverse, right? Where we have Christmas trying to take over Halloween <laughs> and see how that turns out on it. That would be a very, right. that'd be interesting. Oh, gosh. Well, we'll have to analyze that instantly proven wrong (laughs) but but this is what the pod does this is our power you know uh, as podcasters (laughs) on the pulse of the entertainment industry here it's just how it goes so guys you know maybe in a year or two we'll be covering the sequel who knows 
And in the sequel, we have a new addition here, the, the wife of Dr. Finkelstein. And I did <laughs> want to mention her here because this is a completely new woman, but it's interesting. She looks like him, right? It has basically his face, his everything. And again, half of his brain, we already know that. And so here, I think I saw this really as a metaphor between his first creation, Sally, and this woman, right? Like this woman, I'll be honest, Dr. Finkelstein's not a looker here, whereas Sally's purportedly this beautiful woman. And so I think in a way, he went from this younger, more beautiful doll who doesn't have the brains to someone more that's someone who can get along with him, take care of him properly. She's pushing him in the wheelchair. So instead of maybe going for the younger model, if you will, going for the one that you have the more personality with the one you can connect with more the one you actually would be your soulmate someone you love as opposed to somebody who might be more aesthetically pleasing and whatnot and so i think that's really the metaphor here is that he's he's found his his love but it's it's someone that he didn't originally think it would be because i think he realized and appreciated what it would be like to have a real kindred spirit because she definitely i mean looks exactly like him i think it's clearly more towards him finding his soulmate and kindred spirit as opposed to sally who just was someone he was making maybe for more immediate interests. I would say that uh, Sally is actually probably the smartest person in Halloween town because she's the only one who seems other than zero, who seems to understand uh, what's going on. But I guess from a more of a mad, a, I guess from more of a mad scientisty type of vibe that, yeah, uh, probably he needs somebody who thinks more like he does. And it'll be interesting if they make her into a character in this purported sequel that may or may not be occurring here. So I would assume that with how Disney has been in recent years and how they've decided to just basically exploit all of their previous success, uh, that there's a pretty good chance that that's going to happen. Uh, you know, there's already, there's Hocus Pocus three has been confirmed. So they are definitely all over these nineties properties and trying to milk them as much as they can. Now that everyone who is our age has expendable income and has ability to buy all the merch and everything. So they're going to be all over, uh, probably all of our favorite properties for some time to come. And they already have been for a while already. Um, so I'm not surprised to see that that is coming. So now that I'm actually reading the articles, it seems like it might be in the form of a book, not a movie. So maybe this isn't what we what I had originally thought it might be. Well, regardless of what it is, there's going to be something. And so we will see in what form it manifests. But definitely, it seems like there's some kind of new content on the horizon. Now, I will say, going back to this 1993 movie... It's a great movie. I, I can't really give it anything in the way of like a score or like some analysis as far as like the what level I would I would rank it because it's one of these situations where the plot, the story isn't like doesn't blow you out of the water. It's not it's not like some dramatic, amazing sort of storyline, but the look of it, the the music, the nostalgia, the style just everything about it is so nostalgic and so well done that I think it's like in a class of its own. I don't really have any other movies that I go back to and watch that are anything like this. It's just wholly unique. So for me, this is a classic. It's not my favorite movie of all time, like Hocus Pocus, but it's one that I come back to most years and watch again. So I wouldn't really change anything about it because I think that it's just too unique and it needs to be left the way that it is. 
I'm in the same camp. That's why I don't like the whole ratings and ranking systems and all that. Cause it's just so hard to do. And it kind of, it really depends at what angle you're seeing this. I mean, just the fact that it is the claymation, the way that it is to me is, is a significant part of any score I would give it. Whereas other people, if you're, like you said, viewing it solely from the plot, you might have a plot hole or plot device. You don't like that maybe unravels oogie boogie style, the entire movie for you. To me, I look at it. Hey, great theme, great music good enough story, memorable characters, huge labor of love, something unique, something different. That factors in greatly to me, something that's never been tried before really at that time, something to kind of create an entire genre in of itself. All those things factor into it being a really good movie and a, a new family tradition. I think that's fine just to leave it at that. I don't. I liked what we do where we're able to maybe dissect things about it that we liked and don't like and just leave it at that. We don't need to have the the hot take conclusions or anything, especially for a movie like this, where I think you can really see it from a lot of different angles, good and bad, that make it work. I feel like in the podcast, that's what we've done. And by and large, I think we came on the the, the end of good here. And to me, that's going to be a, maybe we'll be like Ebert, Siskel and Ebert. Those were the ones we grew up with, giving two thumbs up, you know, you just keep it simple. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a great method for this one. Two thumbs up, that's all you need. And, you know, we're going to be headed off into more Christmas territory. This was sort of getting our feet dipped into that pool a little bit. Uh, But we're going to go full Christmas the next few weeks. We have a few picks coming up. A couple of movies, one episode of a show. A show that, in fact, we have been waiting to cover in some capacity since basically the beginning of the podcast. Uh, If you are on our Patreon, you would know what we're talking about already. I'm not going to spoil that here, but if you want to know about our lineup, go ahead on the Patreon, check out our behind-the-scenes episodes. We talk about everything that's coming up and what you can expect. With that, guys, we will catch you next time when we return to the 1990s. Follow us on Patreon and Instagram at the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. Our Patreon offers access to special posts, a Discord server, and bi-weekly exclusive episodes. Spend time with us there until our next new episode when we return to the 1990s.